Reynolds and welcome to the dinner party. In this podcast, I hear from guests about their dream dinner parties. They describe the venue, the menu and the guest list. It's always fascinating getting people talking about the people they admire most. You get such a window into their creativity and personality. It's just great. This week, I am so excited to be joined by actor, writer, composer and improviser Olivia Mace. Olivia is a creative force of nature. She's so proactive and she makes things happen. She always seems to have about 10 different amazing projects on the go at once. I don't know how she finds the time or the energy. She's such a really terrific creative person and someone who I'm so excited to hear from. You're going to love this chat, so enough from me. Here is the amazing Olivia May. Olivia Mace, thank you so much for joining me on the dinner party. How are you? <laughs> I'm absolutely grand. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, I'm so delighted. You were one of the first people that I thought of when I was starting the series and I contacted you and you very kindly agreed to do it. And then it's inexplicably taken me to episode 19 to have you on. So thank you very much for making the time. <laughs> oh, it was very, very flattering to be asked. Um, and yeah, no problem at all. Well, you've been exceptionally busy. I mean, you've sort of bucked the national trend, Liv, of being busy in 2020. How has this year been for you? Yeah, it's uh, it's weird, isn't it? I um, I suppose, uh, well, I, I had a play on in, in Oxford, which was... Uh, very luckily for us who were involved in it, uh, it finished just before lockdown. So it finished just at the very start of March. It was uh, mm. my uh, Bleak House adaptation that was on in the um, Oxford, in the bookshop. In yeah, the in Blackwell's and the gorgeous Norrington room. Um, yes. And uh, so that happened. And that was my first proper, you know, full, fully staged production of anything that I'd written. And it broke theatre because then... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you find, you know you wait you write all these scripts and all this stuff happens and you go I've got to play on it for real for more than one night in a on a stage with people who've been paid rather than begged quick and it happened and it went really well and then theatre broke and the world crashed so we just I, weren't ready ooh. for you <laughs> we needed a little pause yeah um <laughs> So obviously, like everybody else in my in the creative industry, I panicked and I wrote to everybody who's ever met me and went, <laughs> or who has ever paid me to do anything, and went, ha! Um, and I've been so lucky. I've been so so lucky. As I was telling you just before we began, um, I'm sitting in um, what was once a wardrobe in my house, which my husband, my husband's a, a, an actor too. He does a lot of voiceover stuff, which my husband filled with foam. And uh, in this foam-filled wardrobe, I've recorded an audio book. I'm about to record another one. I've done a few uh, little voiceover jobs in here. And uh, those have ticked along. And I've been writing. And I've been very, very proud to have been asked to write things. Um, and uh, I've done a, cool. a little bit of Zoom teaching as well. A little bit of trying to teach people how to act via Zoom. Uh, wow. I mean... Was, Challenge. Acting yeah. on Zoom, which is obviously kind of a, a big thing at the moment, because that's mm. pretty much where all plays have sort of had to to go. Is that a particularly different skill to acting on stage? I mean, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but you'll know much better than I will about the kind of the subtleties of and what's involved with it. But tell us about how much of an adjustment that's been kind of taking theatre onto Zoom. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the acting classes I taught, I kept everything, you know, strict to exercises and sort of stuff. Um, but then when I did a play, um, so Creation Theatre, who you and I know really well, because mm. I think that's how we met each other, isn't it, Connor? It was, yeah, about 10 years ago now when yeah. you were acting with them. Yeah. Yeah. So they were, well, actually, they didn't just ask me. I, I wrote to them. <laughs> I emailed. They were one of the people I panic emailed. And I said, um, I'll do anything. Let me write something or be in something. Or do you need anything cleaning or whatever? And um, <laughs> what I actually did was I sent them a pitch for a for a big, very very ambitious um socially distanced show that i wanted to do in oxford that would basically mean taking over the entire city of oxford and having actors everywhere and you know here's my idea and it'll cost you 22 pounds you know um and then i obviously nothing came for a bit and then they emailed me and said lots of people have emailed us with ideas and uh we're going to bring you all together and we had the most beautiful zoom big meeting uh, me and a, and a handful of other marvelous people including including nicholas osmond mm. um who i'd known from back in the day uh who and all of us had done the same thing we'd all approached creation with various ideas for online things or whatever and uh what they did was they said let's be a team of brainstormers and you guys you know let's all think together and and, and see what you can pitch um which was cool and we referred to ourselves as the um the extraordinary league of theatre makers, like the, <laughs> like the Avengers. We decided we were like the Avengers, and we had some really fun zooms where we went, "We could do this, or we could do that." No, we couldn't. Yes, we could. Oh, have you got one of them? You know, it was brilliant. And um, <laughs> in one of those meetings, Nick Osmond pitched his absolutely brilliant idea, which was for a two-hander version of Hamlet, which is just Hamlet and Horatio chatting. And um, then he's and then we talked about and that has happened that has been on uh, been online and it was hugely successful and because i like to steal other people's ideas and <laughs> piggyback on other people's ideas i had the idea for the merry wives of whatsapp which is <laughs> what uh, i then did with the uh, phenomenal lizzie hopley she oh, and i Lizzie's wrote it so and yeah. performed it together so when we were rehearsing that play i have not seen elizabeth hopley in the physical flesh for years but we've been like become besties because we've written this thing together and performed <laughs> it together we're actually thinking of writing something else together now but when we were rehearsing it or via zoom we learned all these things you have to get to know so you obviously can't lock eyes with somebody. You can't look into the eyes of a person on Zoom. Yeah. Uh, because you'd be, if you look into their eyes, they don't get to look into yours because you're looking at the screen rather than into the lens. Of course, yeah. So if you want the impression to be, and this is how, did you see that show staged with David Tennant and um, Michael Sheen? It's on my extensive to watch list. Oh, it's so good. Well, that, that's a similar concept of actors working over Zoom, rehearsing over Zoom and, and chatting over Zoom. And yeah. I, I guess they must have had to do the same thing. If you want it to look like you're making eye contact, looking into the eyes of the person you're talking to, you mustn't look into their eyes. You have to look into the little lens, mm. which is the actual opposite of everything an actor is taught how to do because <laughs> yeah. when you're working on on film you're told don't look down the lens no one apart from fleabag is allowed to look down the lens <laughs> anyone else anyone else if they look down the lens by accident you know then there goes cut don't look in the camera you knob because you're not meant to right so it, so if you're doing camera work like, don't look down the lens and if you're doing stage work you have to look into the eyes of your we all prefer to work with actors that will you know lock eyes with you and really bounce off you yeah so so we had to 
try and react to each other without really looking at each other, which is just the most, like goes against all your instincts. The other thing we learned is Zoom hops to the sound before, oh. it, hop, before it hops to an image. So we had to find, pl there were places in the show where we wanted the camera to come to us a bit of a, like a split second before we actually spoke because of the rhythm of it, you know? Oh, so, wow. Because otherwise, you'd start saying your line, but Zoom wouldn't realise it was you talking until you were like a word in. Yeah. And that's not what you want visually for theatre. So we learned this mad thing where you kind of go, ah, before you speak. You make a <laughs> sort of mad little noise. So there was, you know, lots of scenes where we really wanted it to look like a tennis ball match. It'd be like, her, me, her, me. And so yeah. you'd go, you got into the habit of, first of all, not looking at the person you're acting with, but going, ah, right before you speak or, or, or taking a massive loud breath so that Zoom would go, oh, it's Olivia speaking and like find you. Um, so all these weird little technical things that you have to sort of adjust to. That's um, mad. But really fu fun. I was going to swear then thought, oh, I'm not allowed, but I am, aren't I? You are, absolutely. So it was really fucking fun. <laughs> it was really fun. Um, God, it was a massive challenge. And to be at the behest of like internet con connections and, um, you know, technology, yeah. to be entirely reliant on that is is very, very scary. It's so, so incredible. I mean, as you say, it kind of goes against all the instincts you have as an actor to do those things. And you've got your writer's hat on as well. So you're writing mm. for a very specific medium. I mean, in theory, we're we're looking at maybe twenty twenty one life going sort of back to to normal again. Is there are there any lessons you can take from what you've done online and apply to kind of real life shows, or is is Zoom and online acting and writing for online such an anomaly that it kind of is its own thing, and then you'll go back and kind of unlearn all that stuff again when you're back on stage? That's such a good question. I think it is a bit of an anomaly because what we've kind of talked about a lot, those of us who've been trying to make work in this medium is it is not theatre. Like something yeah. I've I've recently really appreciated is how you can't, theatre has to be what theatre is. And I've seen shows that have been like live streamed, which have been magical, but they have not been theatre. Like yeah. even the wonderful, the old Vic has done some absolutely banging things. Like it did the one man show with Andrew Scott and um, the uh, th three hander as well. I can't remember the name of any of these. Bloody <laughs> top of my head. Um, but it, all of these things that were live streamed from their empty theatre, it was absolutely, you know, it was mm. very moving. And they even put in the sounds of front of house noise and applause and things. Mm -hmm. But you, there's something absolutely unique about theatre, which is that you must be present. It's about sharing the energy and, and the breath and the eyeballs of the people in the room. And yeah. there's nothing else like that. There's just not, you can't, you can't make that. And when we did the Zoom show, when we did the Merry Wives of WhatsApp, we got the audience suddenly appearing. So we had like, oh, where's Mistress Quickly? And then some poor woman who's sitting there <laughs> a glass of Chardonnay in, you know, Basingstoke is suddenly on the screen <laughs> and, and, ma and made to be in the Zoom call with us. And, uh, you know, and occasionally everyone would pop up in a big gallery view and we'd go, right, because we made it that uh, everybody was all in this WhatsApp group of, of women in Windsor who were all like 
out for revenge. And so sometimes we'd make them, the audience, be that. And we actually got proper audience participation. Oh, amazing. Uh, well, we'd get them talking back to us and joining in and doing things for us. But it is still not quite theatre. It is just not. There's something. But it's kind of cool that it's been discovered, this sort of semi because film is film and it is non-interactive and yeah. you're not there live and theatre is theatre and you are there and you're physically in the room and then now we are creating this thing that is sort of as a you halfway say, house it's a halfway house and it's a new thing and I think that's cool and I think that there will be I think that will continue oh that's really interesting is it something that you'll want to continue with or do you kind of feel like you've done your stint in in whatever we call this and are you, are you just relishing getting back in front of actual people again? I am relishing that, but I think I would continue. I mean, when when things ease up, I've done a lot of theatre from my house. Um, my, like I did the Merry Wives of WhatsApp was the entire downstairs of my house. It was me running around in my kitchen, in my <laughs> living room. My poor husband just had to not come home from work for hours. Um, and uh, then I did some Globe theatre. I, I work for the Shakespeare's Globe and I'm one of their storytellers. Yes, this is something I really want to ask you about because, yeah. as I sort of said at the beginning, there are so many amazing aspects to your creativity. I mean, you, you're an actor, you're a writer, you're an improviser and composer, singer, and storytelling with the globe. It sounds like just the dream job. I mean, is, is that utilising yeah. your improv skills or is it more scripted or is that a kind of mix of things? It's it's a mix. So what we've always done as the storytellers, there's a handful of us that do it and it's a very, very special job. But basically we create uh, one person storytelling versions of the plays. And uh, under normal circumstances, we've been, I've done them on the Sam Wanamaker stage. I've done them on the oh. Globe stage. I've done them in a lot of school halls as well. Sure. And I've done them in like, you know, various festivals and things. I did the Merry Wives of Windsor one in uh, in Windsor Castle. You get to do these cool things in wow. spaces and they are a bit interactive. So they are, storytellings can't be fully scripted. They have to be, present and live and you have yeah. to sort of tell it fresh every time and, and it will adapt according to the people who you're with and the space you're in and stuff um and then in in lockdown we did some live streamed ones and so the little room i'm now in where i'm sitting in the what was once a wardrobe <laughs> um is where i did those and i had <laughs> it's, it's absolutely batty to be representing shakespeare's globe doing this but i had my laptop <laughs> on the ironing board can I say how revolutionary and vital my ironing board has been in these times? I haven't done any ironing, but because of the adjustable height, you can put devices on it. You can adjust the height. It's like it's like having an extra tripod. It's amazing. So I, I had my laptop on the on the ironing board and a massive prop table behind it, and I was pulling all these objects out from around the camera and telling the story of the Tempest with like a little a little wooden boat and you know all kinds of things um wow. and puppets that i'd made you know and it, it's it's it was and it was really cool and the kids were there and you know they'd be live and interactive and see you and join in on gallery view and stuff um i think if i'm lucky enough to continue to be able to make theater i think we should find a name for this thing that's kind of mm. like live interactive digital theater oh maybe that's what it's called maybe i just named it <laughs> That's actually what it is. Uh, but luck, if I'm lucky enough to not have to do it in my spare room with like my laundry underneath the camera and, you know, my husband sworn to silence, you know, if, if I was allowed to 
you know, run around uh, like the city of Oxford or be in a big space or in a warehouse yeah. and have loads of different cameras. And, you know, if we could open up the, 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 the cool spaces we could use, yeah. I think live digital theatre is a very cool thing because it means that people in any part of the world can see a show in London. We're, yeah. quite, we're quite lucky and, and a little bit, we're in a bit of a snooty bubble here in London because we've got all the we've got all the theatres yeah and you know ooh, you want to come to the national you want to come to London but actually <laughs> you know you can watch you should be able to watch a, a show made by the National Theatre or the or the Globe Theatre from anywhere and in this medium you can absolutely yeah it's it has done so much to to kind of make the arts more accessible which I guess is it's it's maybe fast tracked some work that the theatre industry really needs to be doing anyway, in terms of making it accessible to people who haven't got, you know, two hundred quid to spend on tickets to go see a West End show. Um, mm. I mean, have you have you interacted with kind of different kinds of audience than what you're used to to working with or or to in in the kind of theatre productions that you have been doing before? Yes, I think so. I mean. Um... For example, with with creation, as as you know, creation are very uh, special in Oxford, and they've got a really loyal following in Oxford. Mm. And um, the same people will come and see creation shows, and it's mm-hmm. a delightful thing. They've got this loyalty in their audience. Um, but then when we did the Merry Wives of WhatsApp, we had people tuning in from America, That's and mad. actually on. I know it's totally mad. And actually on Thursday morning, uh, Lizzie and I are going to be interviewed by some people who are studying Shakespeare at Berkeley University, California. Oh, my who, God. It's so funny. Who watch The Merry Wives of WhatsApp and are, you know, having a discussion in their in their class about, uh, you know, digital and online Shakespeare and how Shakespeare's stories can be told in, in an online and digital form. You know, we'd never have Whoa. got a bunch of students, a bunch of Shakespeare students from, from America coming to a show in Oxford before. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, yeah, it's totally cool. And when I've done the globe ones, I've had kids in all parts of the world. That's um, really cool. Come, tuning in to watch The Tempest and being, you know, in India and uh, America and uh, different parts of Europe. And so, yeah, it just means that it's accessible to everybody. Um, yeah. And that means that we have work to do. You know, we, the the relationship between theatre makers and their audiences has to be one where we are constantly opening more doors and we are constantly mm-hmm. creating more um more flavors and more languages and more textures and mm-hmm. if we only just made and this is why creation is so good because they don't do this but if they just literally rolled out a nice easy shakespeare in the park every summer and nothing else mm-hmm. and they had the same nice people come to see it every year mm-hmm. uh and there'd be nothing challenging about that whatsoever. Creation yes. are really bold in the work that they make. They go, yeah, let's try that. Why not? Yeah. Oh, it looks a bookshop can be a theater. Yeah. Oh yeah. We can tell that story. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. and they, but, but, and then the audience are now rising that challenge even further by going, well, now creation theater are making things, not just for those lovely loyal people in Oxford who come every year, but we are now seeing people all over the country, all over the world, people who don't know creation, who don't mm-hmm. know what to expect. So what are we going to do to raise our game and bring something to them? So it, it makes us rise to the challenge. Theatre should be an ever-evolving thing. 
And yeah. so this is just part of that evolution. And it means we change our game. We up our game. Totally. It's, it's so hugely exciting. And I think things like um, even sort of simple things like the National Theatre at Home stuff that we had earlier in lockdown, a different play on YouTube every week. It mm. was opening up that, you know, exactly what you were saying there. It's opening up theatre to audiences who couldn't go to London to see it or to spend money on those tickets. And it must be so exciting for young people, uh, kind of kids in particular, who are seeing theatre for the first time and they could be living in the most remote areas. They could be living uh, in in areas without a kind of great theatrical sort of culture in them. Um, it, it's a hugely exciting thing. Obviously, really challenging year for so many creatives working in the industry. Definitely. But the industry itself, in some ways, hopefully will benefit from what this year has kind of done in terms of opening some of those new doors for people. I, I hope so. And um, I mean, it's been very, very frightening. And for, for all the theatres, you know, we've been, you know, all crossing our fingers that the globe and uh, and also the smaller spaces, the, the very precious smaller spaces and regional theatres and fringe mm -hmm. theatres that they come out the other side financially. Um, they've had to be quite creative in how they keep the work flowing. Yeah. Um, but it has been hopefully a gentle wake up call for a lot of them to kind of go, well, when we're, when we come back, when we get to come back guns blazing back onto the stage, what are we going to bring? I mean, the very first show that came back onto the national theater between lockdowns, like as a filling to a lockdown sandwich was uh, <laughs> the absolutely brilliant uh, death of England Delroy, which is a one man show Yes. I got I and I got tickets to see it. I got to see the first preview um after the first lockdown and I got to wow. see Rufus Norris stand on the stage and go, Welcome back to the National Theatre and a, and a couple of hundred people cool. sob and clap and, <laughs> um, but that you know, that show was very challenging to the whole institution. You know, it's 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 a mm -hmm. kind it's a black man standing up and saying, COVID it has has damaged me in different ways because COVID is racist. Um, people have viewed yeah. me in different ways because of the society we live in. Um, and uh, it, you know, it's kind of like, I think it's, I think it's really interesting that that was the show that the national theater picked. I, I guess they had to go for a one person show to make sure. things safer and easier, but they went for a show that challenged the world, that challenged society that stands up and says, there's something wrong here. Yeah. That's what they chose to go for. Um, the poor guy uh, who who did it, and magnificent actor. I think he got about two, three weeks before he had to stop again because the second lockdown came. Yeah, but um, it's 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 very telling what those theatres are choosing to open their doors with. It's making a big statement because we have all learned the lessons of not just in our industry, but society's been very. It's been very obviously pointed out to us where the divides are. Yeah, during this. And um, those divides of all that you just mentioned about, you know, the affordability of tickets, for example, is something that's always really annoyed me about theatre. Mm -hmm. It's it's really made a bit. And whenever I've been to the theatre back in normal times, I used to go, you know, a couple of times a month and mm -hmm. I'd sit and look around and go, who's here? Yep. The same people are here. Yeah. The same people yeah. who are always here are here. And, um, you know, if I'm lucky enough that I've got 50 quid for a ticket because it's my industry and because it's important to me that I see what's on, I would mm -hmm. often fork that 50 quid out 
Um, I would often also have to call up a mate who might know somebody and go or queue for a return or not see mm-hmm. it because sometimes 50 quid is quite is a bit too much to stump up. Yeah, that yeah. is not what theatre should be. Theatre is something that's been made for people by people that's meant to be uh, uh, about society, about politics, about community. That's what it was when it originated. And it does make me cross. It does make me really cross when there are barriers that don't let people in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah absolutely. I hope it gets shaken up a bit when it when they all come back. It's interesting that you you say kind of that that essentially that is what theatre should be about about society and about challenging people and about issues and it's uh, so brilliantly put there by, by you by people for people. Mm. Are these things that you think about when you're writing and when you're choosing a subject and uh, you know what what. Uh, what drives you to to a certain project? What's really important to you when you're choosing what to write? Oh God, that's such a big, it's quite a general question as well. Question. <laughs> a, yeah, I should know the answer to it. I really should know the answer to it. Um, it's funny. I I don't know what way round ideas are meant to happen. Ideas for plays or ideas for mm. screenplays. Um, they they. For me, they tend to come up as very tiny little ideas that sort of blossom into something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose when I am writing, something that I do think about constantly is I think about a variety of people sitting in an audience and I do think of them physically there. Um, it's probably because mm. I've spent a lot of time at the Globe. I, I've, you know, become a writer via being an actor and then an improviser and then sort of like become more of a writer Uh it's a journey and I've worked at the globe in the, in the education department and, and doing storytellings and workshops for a number of years now. And when you are connected to that theater, you are not allowed to ignore the audience. That is the number one rule of, of Shakespeare's globe is Mm -hmm. that you can't, you can't turn your back on them. They're right there. Mm -hmm. And for anybody who understands the history of theater, that's what it always was. It was a big circle with a lot of people who were very much <laughs> brightly lit by the sun. There was no such thing as a curtain or a, or a light shining mm-hmm. on the stage in darkness. They all came in the middle of the afternoon and they all sat there in broad daylight. Um, and then the, the stage was a little tiny space, especially if you think about the old Greek theatres, in the middle. And it was their job to, to talk to all of those people. That is their job. It's to talk to all of those big people uh, uh, within whom within that group there'd be a, a huge variety of people mm-hmm. and so that gets drilled into you when you've when you've worked in in the globe and I suppose my challenge that I keep setting myself when I write and then when I edit is who am I talking to now mm-hmm. who's this character talking to and who's this character talking to um I make sure there's a voice in the in in my play for everybody I like to think that the different characters might gently be resonating with somebody who's sitting in the audience i wouldn't Mm. write a play that's got five people that are all in the same exact world or an exact same place or of the Mm -hmm. exact same age or gender or race because you want to think somebody you have to relate to one person in my play so whoever's watching has to pick one person that's i I want there to be someone in it for them Mm -hmm. and i also want those people to be really different my my the the best compliment is when people come out and somebody's going i liked him i agreed with him and somebody else is going no 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 i i liked her i agreed with her and that gets the debate going um so i suppose yeah the idea has the idea happens and you have to just serve it when i when i have an idea for a story i i I immediately start to act 
like not like I've had the idea, but like the idea has had me. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And that I sort of separate myself from it and try and serve it and go, what's the best way to tell this story? Rather than think, have I, and is this clever, am I? Because then you've become a big sort of, it, it just turns sure. into a, 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 you know, a big mess. But if you kind of go, right, here's the idea and it's growing. How can I help it grow? And then I interrogate it as I go along with who's watching and who's in this play for them and who's talking to them. That's that, really interesting. It's, it's a really considered approach, it sounds like, which I guess is a luxury you don't necessarily have when you're improvising which is a, another huge aspect of your creativity you improvise a lot of music and you improvise comedy and it's uh, often long form and that kind of thing I mean it's so different in many respects to what you have there which is your considered approach to writing and thinking who am I speaking to because mm. it it's so instant and you have to do it so quickly um, and I, I read, uh, we were talking about Lizzie Hopley before, I read a chat that you had with Lizzie that she put in her website where you were talking about how improv kind of shouldn't be a scary thing for people. And even though so many people think, oh my God, improv, that is without a doubt the scariest thing <laughs> I could possibly ever do. But what is it uh, about improv, particularly with your sort of storyteller hat on, when you're mm. improvising a story... And you don't have that luxury of time. What is that experience of storytelling like for you? And how how much does it differ from the other approach, which is the stop and think about it? Um, I suppose I didn't really get really get brave as a writer until I'd done improv. And 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 I, when I'm writing, I apply my improv brain to it. Um, and I mm. let and I sort of just go. Something's popped into my head, and it's shiny, and it's pinging and so I'm just going to write it and then the next thing I write is going to come from it and mm. I'm not going to worry about it and then the next thing I write comes from that and so as I write a script it tends to be quite it, I treat it a bit like an improv and then I'm I have the luxury of then editing it which you don't have when you improvise <laughs> but um yeah improv kind of woke up the bit of my brain that could that could write fearlessly which I was very grateful to improv for. It, I think everybody should do improv. I really do think, and I know this sounds wacko and hammy as hell, but I think everyone should do everyone should do improv. You know how in some some countries you have to do a year in the army. <laughs> you know, yes, you know, what's it yeah. called? National service. I think we should have that. I think I think if every person, I think if every person was taught improv at school, we'd have a we'd have a more a, a nation of people that are That's comfortable. Amazing. That can communicate, that listen to each other, uh, and and you have to be kind when you're when you're being an improviser as well. You don't you don't get to be a good improviser and not be kind because you, yeah. you you're responsible for the other people who are on the stage with you and helping them uh, and listening to them and serving what they what they're giving you. So yeah, I think everyone should do improv. Everybody should learn improv, and everybody should learn how to bake one thing really nice. <laughs> Like one the really world would absolutely be a better place. The if world could would be a better place if Donald Trump had done improv when he was like ten years old <laughs> and learned to make a good lemon drizzle. <laughs> the world, the actual world, would be a better place, and I do mean it. I do mean it. Um, yeah, improvs, improvs are great, for, especially for bra brain 
brain heavy people. I was going to say brainy people, but I'm not to Im- not meaning to imply that I'm really clever. But sure, my, sure. But my brain's on all the time. My brain's constantly chattering away. Yeah. Um, and that can become quite a burden uh, when you've got a head that won't shut up. But when you're doing improv, <laughs> you have to make your head shut up so that you listen to the other person. And then you have to s- be let something come out. And yes. it's, uh, it's a re- and just go, right, listen and respond to what you just heard. And then they listen to you and respond to that. And it's uh, it's uh, brilliant. It's a golden thing. It's, I mean, when when I see improv, I i am just dazzled by it. And it is something I would love to do more of. I've done little bits, but I would love to try more. But it just seems like there are so many plates you've got to keep spinning, particularly if it's kind of musical improv or longer form improv or both, you know, you're trying to keep track of story, of music, lyrics, other mm. performers, and very often you're also having to be funny at the same time. Mm. And it's all made up in the moment, but how do you prepare yourself for that? Um, I mean, when I was uh, doing a lot of stuff with a troupe, which I haven't been for a little while, and I'm hoping to join back up with them again soon, uh, we, we would have rehearsals, workshops, um, where we would just play and play and play and play and play. So we'd spend a couple of hours, you know, doing improv games exercises um and you just learn the mindset i suppose it's a bit Mm -hmm. like a sport i suppose Mm -hmm. like if you and i don't play any sports but you know you 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 (laughs) practice your game don't you you practice all your little techniques and you practice your game and you play a few games but then every single game is different yes yeah yeah that's true and is is there a big part of it as well where you get to know the people you're performing with as well and like you those relationships help you do it that little bit better uh i'm imagining kind of if you started improvising with a whole new group of people there'd be a lot to learn about the dynamics of that group oh a little bit i mean if you're i mean i'm not a i'm not a i'm not a fully up full trained up like total pro of an improv uh artist i i literally just enjoy doing it and do it whenever I can but um people that have done the really you know the really good long courses um uh, all of which are brilliant you know the nursery theater uh, and uh the the people there's so many um Mm -hmm. they've learned the rules and they've learned the games so Mm -hmm. that means they can be thrown together with people they've never improvised with before and because everybody knows the rules they can Mm. they can play and that's really exciting um the rules are there's lots of funny little rules but the only rule is the big rule is to to yes and whatever's come yes. before. So, you know, you accept it and you... And that's actually why I think everybody should do improv is this sort of like, you have to fully embrace the thing that someone's given you. You're not allowed to go, well, uh, no, and adjust it a bit to your thing that you like. Um, yeah, yeah. You have to really, really empathise. You have to really, really listen and you have to really go, okay, that, well... I see that and now I add this to it or now I take it here. Um, and that's pure generosity and and yeah. empathy, which to, to, to be able to do that, to be able to really listen to the other person without going, well, but, which is something we all have a tendency to do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, th- I think, and it's a, a mindset and a skill set that I think you're so right. Uh, it would improve so much about, even the the least creative industries, you know, if someone comes up with an idea, the easiest thing in the world is for people to say, oh, no, no, I don't yeah. agree. 
but that mindset to actually say okay well let's just go with this for a minute and see see where the conversation ends up that would be very cool yeah Uh, I mean there's there's so much uh, I, I keep sort of emphasizing how absolutely extraordinary I think all the different facets to your creativity are but there's one sort of question that I love to ask people Mm. on this podcast I love chatting to creative people about their creativity and about the things that are kind of quite public or the things that they're sort of known for but I also love to find out from people about the sort of the sides of their creativity or the little creative challenges or or things on the creative bucket list that maybe we don't know about that we'd be quite surprised by Uh, I mean (laughs) something that came up in your conversation with Lizzie that I was reading earlier was the possibility that you might try stand up one day and certainly between improv and between your writing and between your acting I mean the whole skill set is there and you're very very funny the songs you've written and recorded are hilarious is that something we could ever see Olivia Uh, Mace the stand up the only way you're going to ever see it is when Lizzie Hopley beats me up to the point that it happens (laughs) because Lizzie's a really good stand up have you seen Lizzie's stand up I have yeah she's great brilliant and uh, you know but it's funny because I see her do stand up and go wow I can't believe you do that and then she sees me do improv and she goes what the hell I can't believe you Um, and uh, yeah I do you know what I'd I don't have a I don't have a passion for it I don't have a sort of itch for it but I would I would totally do the experiment of it um I've 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 had the uh great fortune to die on stage um when (laughs) I uh, after I'd done one of my one of my comedy videos after I'd done my first one um some some very sweet people who were kind said oh you did a funny song on YouTube and we liked it do you want to come and sing a funny song a couple of funny songs at our gig our little fringe thing and yeah. I said and I said yes now the my downside to my musical stuff is even though I write music and I compose I don't play anything um to any oh, standard wow. no no I can't I mean I can sit there at a piano and go right and play like a chord to work out the harmony of something I'm writing or to check that the chord is yeah. what I want it to be but I can't sit and play a piece on the piano or, or on the guitar so um whenever I have to sing live I have to get someone to be my accompanist or I um get a backing track and in this instance yeah. I made I made a backing track and I, got, I tried out a new song on these people <laughs> and it fucking died Connor it, <laughs> it died a death because people didn't get it from the offset they didn't quite get it now a lot yeah. of my YouTube stuff relies a lot on imagery I do like videos tell the story with the song yeah um, yeah so I'll tell you what it was this dire dire joke it was um, <laughs> I I think it might have been about three or four years ago, but it was around about the time when Jeremy Corbyn had had his big wave of of like love from all the millennials and people had started the Corbyn thing. Yeah, yeah. Started then it then that that the descent of that began. So I think it was around. I mean, I can't remember which particular event had happened, but it was the beginning of the doubts of the Corbynistas, basically. Okay. So I wrote a ballad that was like meant to be in the style of 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 of, of um, Winona Ryder and and what's that one <laughs> called? Nothing compares to you. I wrote a ballad in that sort of style called Oh yeah, a- called Asta la Corbinista, right? Dying <laughs> to death because people didn't quite get it and they didn't quite know what I was singing about. 
And it, I, I did the whole thing. The problem with a song is, like, I bet if I did stand up, I'd be able to go, oh, this joke's not working. I'm going to segue in this direction. Or, oh, oh, that sketch didn't land, but this sketch will. But the song is th- three minutes long and you've just got to finish it. And especially a backing track rather than your mate or your own guitar. And you just sang through this song and people were like looking a bit serious because they thought I was doing a real song, a real love song. Just was, I just wanted to die. I wanted to die. Um, God, it was so bad. Um, and, uh, oh God, yeah, like the, the lyrics were along the lines of, I came to the party uh, like this sort of metaphor about coming to a party and the boy ignoring you is like joining oh, the yeah. Labour Party, but then the boy isn't what he thought he was, you know. Just so <laughs> fucking meta. It was such a disaster. You know, we all write things that don't work. It's fine. <laughs> but then you have to sing the whole sodding thing. And then everyone clapped politely and looked a bit baffled. And I think that was the only song I did. I can't remember if I did another one. But then it just went so wrong. And I remember going backstage and I'd had a few mates come, especially because oh, they were yeah. like, they, you know, kind friends uh, yeah. who were there to support me. And it was basically them and my husband as well. It was the thought of them and my husband sitting in the audience that made it extra sickening. But I just sat on the little <laughs> steps in the back of the Canal Cafe Theatre, it was. The one in Little Venice. And I sat yeah. there and I thought I was going to be sick. And then whoever went on next went on. But I sat there and thought I was going to be sick and thought if Kevin, my husband's name is Kevin, I thought if Kevin wasn't here, I'd run out of this building. I genuinely would have just found the back exit <laughs> and just gone away uh, and walked into London until, you know, the Thames absorbed me. But, <laughs> but basically they were there. So I couldn't leave because they'd all come all that way to come and be there. So I sat there and I thought I was going to puke and then I didn't puke. And then I thought, well, actually, that's happened. I've died on stage. That joke flopped. No one understood it. People looked a bit confused. I'm embarrassed, but I am not dead. I am not going to die. Nothing actually is going to come of this. So I'll just go and sit down with my friends and have a pint. And tomorrow I'll be fine. And it's fine. So having had that experience now, I probably would be able to give stand-up a go without thinking, oh, my life, my life. But I mean, stand-ups get real like serious shit. There's some nastiness in the world of stand up. Like, oh yeah, even those yeah. comedy comedy store ones where you stand up and people like literally oh, shout. I hate what? that side of it. Yeah, I really hate that kind of uh, yeah. gong show culture. Uh, it really does. And like roast battles is another thing oh, in comedy that yeah, no. I cannot stand. And I really don't think it does the comedy industry any favors because it just people see that and they think. That's what comedy is. And it discourages people from coming out to live comedy. It discourages people from sitting in the front row of shows. Yeah. And yeah, it's lazy and it's mean spirited. And yeah, I just, I don't get that stuff at all, really. No, I think that, yeah. So I think like, I wouldn't really want to throw myself in the lion's den. I would do it as an experiment just to see like, oh, could I do this? Could I try and make a stand up? Bit, oh, you know, I have, and have no a go. doubt you could. What do you think <laughs> like, it would look like? I mean, what topics Jesus. would you be drawn to? Would it be kind of character based or would you be very much yourself talking about things you're interested in? Um, I think if you'd asked me a couple of years ago when I was more of an actor than anything else, I think I would have mm. definitely said I'd do something character based. Um, now, I think I would probably be me. 
And I think I'd probably just find one of my favorite stand-ups who's just a, you know, she's not super famous, but she's awesome, is, is a woman called Gabby Best. I hope you'll check her out, people who listen. I will, yeah. And, and Connor do. So she's, she's really cool. She's been in a few shows as an actor, but she, I've seen her do stand-up. Do you know what? She did that gig that I died at after I oh, died. Yeah. I think she was on before me and I was like, Gabby's lovely. And then I went on and died. Uh, Gabby has a really cool way of being able to be entirely herself and just chat. And she's literally just a really funny, cool person just chatting. And those are my favorite stand-ups, the people that look like that's them. And that's just them as they're talking rather than Mm. somebody who's energizing a particular element of their characteristic or you know like billy Connolly is such a such a classic one because he oh, is God, just yeah. you can just tell that is the man that is just the man billy Connolly just standing there and that's yeah. how he would be if he was standing in the pub and those yeah. people have got a an, an electricity and a warmth about them so i think i'd try and be that i think i'd just try and be me just chatting i don't know what that the hell would I'd be talk very about. fun i'll think of something yeah <laughs> <laughs> i am i am excited for this i hope when audiences are back in in 2021 and you've you've got a bit of time and you're you're after your next creative challenge i do hope to see this i'll tr- i'll try it i'll give it a go I'll do it yeah I'll we're into december now it's time to start thinking about new year's resolutions i think that should be top <laughs> yeah. of your list yeah okay okay i'll try i'll try and get five minutes together yes brilliant yes. we will right. have to get you along to jericho comedy to perform those five minutes we would love that what uh, have i just done <laughs> that's a, it constitutes a verbal contract oh, live uh, <laughs> there there is so so much more i i would love to ask you about but you very kindly given up your time to tell me about your dream dinner party yeah and so i am so excited to get into this <laughs> Uh, you've put together such a great group of guests. Uh, I don't believe we've had any of them on the dinner party oh, before, which is that. very exciting. Uh, and for some of them, certainly, I don't know how they haven't been chosen before because they're so, so interesting. Mm. Before we get into the specifics about who would be there and that kind of thing, mm. uh, I would love to know what what are you picturing the tone of this evening to be? <laughs> uh, the tone has to be very laid back. I think mm. all of the people I've chosen are deliberately people who uh, don't need any airs and graces. Uh, yeah, and I, uh, I I think it would be a chilled out affair, a cosy affair uh, where everyone's just sitting about on comfy, comfy seats with uh, a mm-hmm. glass of whatever they want in their hand. And it's super relaxed. I don't want I don't want Noel Coward sitting in the corner playing for us. And I don't need black tie. <laughs> It's it's a relaxed and homely affair. I like this. I can picture that with your group of guests. Uh, I mean, it seems to me like the kind of evening that's going to be fueled by really, really fascinating conversation. There are some dinner parties where I think it's going to be a bit rowdy and a bit mad. I think this seems like the kind of dinner party Mm. where you'll collectively set the world to right. I hope so. Literally, F- correct it, fix it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know that I can't expression. Think of a better group of people to actually yeah, genuinely would. take that task on. I put these people in government. I would literally have them run the country, and I think oh, that would be yeah. place. Every single one of them. Oh my god! There's another podcast we need to start. Just people oh, yeah. putting together their dream cabinet. <laughs> Jeez, God! I was listening to Gove this morning on Radio Four, and yeah, we need oh, a dream cabinet. Sure. Yeah. I mean, just any replacement cabinet at this stage, dream or nightmare, couldn't be worse. Anything. Uh, well, Liv, we, we know what the tone of the evening is going to be, mm-hmm. but we need to know 
where you're gathering this amazing group of people. You could choose anywhere in the world. So tell us where you've chosen for your dinner party. I've chosen a place that I only discovered really recently. Uh, like you and like a lot of people listening, I'm sure that you've been on some walks recently. You know, mm. like you don't we never thought we'd be a culture of going for walks. But now because it's something we can do and not much <laughs> yes. else, we're doing it. So I've got a mate who uh, up until recently was living in uh, central London and he was living on his own. So every time uh, I could, I'd go and have a walk with him because he, he always lived in this little one bed flat in Soho, which we envied him. But then lockdown happened and God, he was going bananas. So we went for some <laughs> we went for some cool walks around uh, some of the big big central London parks that real Londoners, we never really go to these places, but I was yes. walking around them with him. <laughs> and I, we went around St. James's Park. And did you know, I don't, I, I did not know that there is a pelican community. So what? like a community, I didn't know what the word is. They're clearly not called a herd. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know what you call it. What's it called? I love a community of pelicans. <laughs> <laughs> or a, you know a, a, yeah i don't know what the bloody word is swarm <laughs> neat, um thingy so uh, i almost don't want to know the right answer so right let's now. never find out uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um so back in uh, one some weird old monarch you know we've had a few weird old monarchs with penchants i think it was one of the charles's Charles, sure. II, Charles II got given a, a couple of pelicans as a gift by some random king somewhere else. You know, the sort of weird shit that happened hundreds of years ago. And then this community of community of pelicans um, <laughs> became a fixture of St. James's Park. And they've got the gorgeous, you know, these big sort of, you know, big fucking off, like fuck off pink birds just stomping about. And they've got the lake. And they've also got, there's a little place called the Pelican House, which sort of sits in the middle of this lake and there's a tiny little walkway to it. And it's a gorgeous little house in the middle of a lake surrounded by pelicans in the middle of St. James's Park. Amazing. And it's just called the Pelican House for the Pelican Keeper. And because we're English, we don't need to give any more explanation than that, you know, on this little sign. <laughs> and uh, my mate and I were just staring at it, aghast, kind of going, there's a pelican house for the person who looks after the pelicans. And he's Canadian. Um, he's actually gone back now to, to Canada. That was the that was our sort of saying goodbye to each other walk. And he was like, this is the most English thing I have ever seen in my life. You know, you just think you haven't seen enough weird British things. And then there's a fucking pelican family and a, and a man who takes care of the pelicans in a pelican house. So I just thought it was adorable and bizarre and beautiful all at the same time. And then when you asked me about this, you were like, where would you have your dinner? I thought of all these <laughs> tropical places across the world. And I thought, I really want to go inside the Pelican House and sit with Hell some cool yeah. people and look out the window and see St. James's Park, big, beautiful willow trees and big fuck off pelicans galumphing <laughs> about squawking. I think that's a cool place to sit and have uh, a dinner party. I mean, not that you would be shy of any conversation at this dinner party, but there's no way in hell conversation would dry up if you sat in a pelican house. That's a very good point indeed. I hadn't thought of that. That's another thing. It gives it a talking point, so there's not going to be any awkward silences. You can start talking about Charles II's thing for pelicans. Yes. And what is and the no word? Matter... Is it a community? What is it? Talk about, talk about that. You've got a few people who I'm sure would come up with some pretty great names for collective nouns. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it's such a great venue. Uh, we've not had anywhere like the Pelican House in the series so far. An absolutely fantastic venue for a dinner party. 
And so now it's time to find out yeah. about your guests. So Bye. your first guest is one of Britain's finest ever writers and social mm-hmm. commentators. He's a particularly good choice given that we're recording at a time of year on which he's been so influential. Mm. You're inviting the wonderful Charles Dickens. Yes. I couldn't believe nobody else has brought Charlie it's along. It's quite incredible. I mean, I don't know what he's done to the other 18 people I've spoken to <laughs> on the podcast, but clearly he's wronged someone along the way. Ah, why well. <laughs> Why have you invited Dickens? Um, I've just got a real... A real deep like love for him. I know he's quite dead, which uh, that's the only <laughs> thing. The only thing that stops him being my best mate is the deadness of him. Otherwise, we'd be like that. We'd be totally chums. Um, I've just got a real love. I mean, I've always had a love for his for his stories. I, I my favorite book in the world is Bleak House, which is the book I adapted into a, a musical last year for yes. creation, which got to have a, a lovely little run in Blackwell's. Um, he and uh, every Christmas I read a Christmas Carol. My husband thinks it's the most weird thing. I I have to sit there uh, usually on, oh god yeah. on the twenty third no, or twenty fourth and sit and read the whole thing. Do you read it as well? Oh, a hundred percent. I am yeah. with you there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you've got to read the book. There's something magical about the book, and uh, uh, I mean, there's all kind of cool things about him. He had uh, such style. He used to get up very early in the morning and write for exactly two hours at his big beautiful desk. Uh which you can go and see in the Charles Dickens Museum, which was it, which has been is, was his old house, which you can walk around. He would sit and write for two hours at the desk, and then he would stroll out uh, with his <laughs> beautiful cane in his hand and his uh, lovely, you know, beautiful tailcoat, and he would just stroll around London, having chats and social engagements. And he only did his writing in the very early hours of the morning, and then he spent the wow. day chatting with people and socialising. All of the people in his books were based on real people that he knew and met. And mm. uh, I just love that. He was such an active sort of writer. He would go yeah. out and look at the world and meet people and then he would write about them and he did more of the looking and seeing and meeting and thinking than the sitting and writing, which he clearly did in an intense, fast and furious kind of two yeah. or three hours slot in the morning. I think that's just as it should be. He did... He was one of the first writers to put working class characters into his stories. And he, he, he created a lot of social change. He was responsible for an awful lot of social change and also for a mm. lot of... He's one of the first writers that, that was political in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. Like a lot of the works we, we, we know weren't, didn't start off as novels. A lot of them started out as a little bit in a in a weekly or a, or a daily section of a newspaper yeah so you'd read the big story of uh david copperfield or bleak house um bit by bit and they were and of course the papers were only read by certain types of people posh people yeah, yeah. and um he put those working class characters in there he sort of slid them in you know so you'd begin with your you know your familiar characters you know you think of the readers and they begin with their familiar people of their sort of class and their sort of type. And then mm-hmm. people would emerge um, like Joe in Bleak House, whose story is so incredibly poignant. And uh, there are moments in his books or as they were, you know, newspaper articles mm-hmm. where he would leap out and talk directly to them. So there's this extraordinary moment in Bleak House, which we tried so hard to make happen theatrically um, where when little Joe, who's a, a, a homeless boy 
who's mm-hmm. not hugely intrinsic to the story. He's he's he is important to the story, but you know he's just a sort of small character really. When he dies, um, he dies of exposure and, and hunger and and you know, mm-hmm. and then there is a page of just rage. If you read that book where Charles Dickens just and the chapter ends with dead, my lords and ladies, dead, ladies and gentlemen, dead, dying around us every day. And he mm. just had this way of sort of leaping right out of the pages and mm-hmm. going and pointing a finger at you. It's it's spine tingling. There's a moment in I think it's a Christmas Carol when he says uh, I think he's talking about how close uh marley's ghost is yes yeah. and then he says and he says, i love this so much and he says as close as i am to you and yeah. i am in spirit at your elbow yes and i just the first time i read that i i know it's so stupid but i cried because it's just like charles dickens who's very as we as we mentioned very dead um <laughs> but he looks into your eyes and says to you you know and he's coming out of a novel you know, yeah. and he says, I am in spirit at your elbow. And there's something so specific about at your elbow. He's not mm-hmm. like, I'm. he's not saying, imagine I'm right next to you. He says, I am in spirit at your elbow, which I just love because you feel your elbow kind of tingles and you go, Charles Dickens is there. Um, but that's really theatrical. And uh, he loved the theatre, wanted to be an actor. Apparently when he was writing, he would jump up and stand in front of a mirror and do the dialogue that he was writing for the characters in his novels wow. and become the character and sort of say it in character and then write it. That's um, amazing. It's so cool. So he was such a, he was a novelist, but he made, he made it so much more. And uh, he was theatrical in his approach and as, as many people know he was impoverished himself for a short time when he was a little kid he went and yes. was in a, a working a workhouse for about a year before mm-hmm. his father was able to um get out of his debt and come back and get him so he lived that experience and then he spent his whole writing life basically pointing politely or not so politely at posh people and going you mm-hmm. have a job to do you are responsible let me tell you this story which I think is I've always treated theatre as the the medium to do that. Theatre and film and television, I've always thought it's 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 their responsibility to to point mm-hmm. at its viewer and go, hi, by the way, this is the world and you're part of the world. And there <laughs> are, you know, that's kind of what we're doing. You know, and sometimes we do it really brutally in a really Brechtian, mad, shouty way. Um, yeah, and we're living yeah. in a political time that makes that tempting at the moment. Um, to yeah. kind of just spend the whole you could just do a play where you're just standing on a stage going for Christ's sake you could just do that for two hours you go, for fuck's sake everybody um, you know it's it's so we are in a time of such injustice and such pain and such so much work needs to be done um, and I've always thought theatre and film were the mediums to do that but Charles Dickens really did it in his novels and he slid into upper class society and changed things he really changed things yeah, uh, it, and I think that's cool. You're so right, and he he's such an amazing writer. To that, there's so many elements that make him so amazing. I mean, the stories themselves are so great and so brilliantly structured, and the language that is used is so evocative, and it's almost cinematic in places. Like mm. uh, I always think to that uh, description of Scrooge goes on for about two pages and it's so detailed you get such a picture of him 
and yeah. of him walking down the street and how people feel about him. And you can see in your mind's eye people looking away from Scrooge as he walks past in the street. Yeah. It's so amazing. And and structurally, those stories uh, are so brilliant because, as you said, they were written uh, as serializations. Mm. So we always had to have a cracking ending for a kind of yeah. tune in next week type yeah, thing. Yeah, of course. Is there yeah. anything as a storyteller that you uh, feel that you've really learned from Dickens' writing? Um, when I was adapting Bleak House, I really just felt like I was sort of living with the guy you know it was i mean i was yeah. living with another guy uh, who's, who's downstairs <laughs> right now trying not to make any it's noise. a very modern way of living yeah. <laughs> it's a very you know, my husband's like he was just calmly in a marriage there were three people in this marriage uh m- myself my really mad wife and this dead guy um Charles Dickens. i had to you know i was fully like you know when i was adapting the book i was you know listening to him and he was so and I was trying to have chats with him in a way, not in a medium way, but, you know, you're sort of kind of going, right, well, why have, you know, because I had to cut a lot from that book because we couldn't do mm. an eight hour play. Um, <laughs> I would have, but we weren't allowed. Um, and I think as you, <laughs> as you say, he wove story in such an astonishing way. And I mm. learned a ton about that because in Bleak House, but it's the same in all of them. It's like a, I don't know how the hell he structured those narratives, mm. but I ended up having a huge, big. It started off as a as a pin board, and then it became a floor in my in a in a room in a house. <laughs> um, different coloured pieces of paper for all of the characters that I was keeping, not even the ones of his actual yeah, story, because yeah. I kept you know less than half of them because there's so many people. And how those and I like if you imagine strings of coloured ribbon and plaiting them and sort of having them kind of interweave and connect the way that the people connect to each other in this huge tapestry of a story i had to kind of it's insane i had to work out his tapestry and then i had to make my tapestry to make sure that i didn't break (laughs) the strings of any of the threads that i wanted to keep god yeah of course um so everybody was a different colour and I had like four versions of notes and like, you know, I'd get halfway down and go, shit, I need Mr. Badger because Mr. Badger <laughs> does something in chapter two, which means that Esther can do this now. And then I'd go all the way back and go, oh God, I can't get poor, this poor actor number four to play nine people. He's already playing eight people. And then I'd have to kind of merge Mr. Badger with somebody else and kind of come back and string it all together. Um, that I, the, the tragedy of the fact that we didn't get Mr. and Mrs. Badger, who I think are the best named characters, in all of, we didn't get them in our version. But you know, the yeah, I suppose I would. I learned about structure, and I, le- I learned about because especially because I had to edit it and cut it down to make to do the two-hour version yeah, of, a, of something yeah. that would have been God knows how long. I had I learned the lesson when I was working on that of of how everything must serve story which sounds a bit mm-hmm. obvious, but when you're writing and when you're editing, you have to go, does that serve story? Are we yeah. serving the story with that person's existence, with that piece of storyline, with that with that line of dialogue? Is it serving our story? If, if it's not, it must leave. It must leave the building. Um, yeah, uh, and yeah. how is it serving it? And I, I, I've become better at that from doing that job, from doing that adaptation of his work. But it, I mean, and now I, when I have done newer work from since then, I've I've done the tapestry thing anyway. 
I, I kind of had to do the tapestry oh, yeah. thing because I was like, I've got to work out the fucking size of Bleak House and all the, these different <laughs> plot threads and how they work together. I have to do that. And then I made my sort of, you know, mad interlinking strings of people's uh, trajectories. And then now I do that for all of my pieces because the world of painting has sensible. got to have all these people. They've got to interlink. Everything has to happen because of something that one of the other ones did. They have to be intrinsically linked if they're going to be, the you know, there. And and mm-hmm. so, yeah, I would love to ask him when we're sitting in the Pelican House having our, uh, <laughs> I think I'll get some port or something in for him. Oh, I think he'd probably be a fan like of yeah. a port or a sherry. And um, I'll be asking him how, whether he, how, do you think he just sat there and wrote, Great expectations, just improv style, just going, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. Yeah. He must have had, where's his whiteboard? Where's his, <laughs> where's his 25,000 post-it notes all <laughs> on the floor in a random looking kind of thing? If he thing? kept it on his head, it would be frankly indecent. I, I reckon mean, he did, you know. Oh, that is barmy. It's because barmy. in Dickens' stories, like, you'll meet a character in chapter four and then in chapter 49, that same character will come back into someone's life. And you're just like, what the? I know. Fuck? Like, was I he know. planning this back in chapter four? But like, yeah, what? this is the thing. Like, where are the notes and how did he do that structuring? Because, like I said, when I was sort of in analyzing Bleak House to break it down and see how I could ad- edit it, I, things like that all the time. You kind of go, so many mm. times I'd go, oh, look, this funny little woman comes in. She's obviously a funny little cameo <laughs> for a joke. And then you'd go down and go, no. The funny little woman has to be there because if she didn't come in and say that thing, then Ada wouldn't have come up the stairs and then she wouldn't have seen the thing. And you kind of go, it's magical and it's extraordinary because that's how life is, of course. Things happen yeah. because of a series of millions of things. But And you think, God, this story is complicated. And yet you are, you do follow it. You don't get lost. <laughs> He's, which is amazing, it's, really. It's a freakish and, and unique gift for story and character and making everything so kind of interwoven yeah it's it's more intricate i think than any other writer i've ever encountered amazingly Um, so and and you touched on it as well before not just the structure of the story the intricacy of the plots and the characters and how they relate to each other but the actual themes that you wrote on Mm. we're talking in 2020 you know nearly Mm. 200 years ago he mm. was writing about inequality. He was a social yeah. commentator. He was talking about societal justice, all these issues mm. that still feel like you see in the news, Marcus Rashford having to bully the government I into know. feeding starving children. I know. That is like something lifted out of a Dickens novel. Is that why it was kind of uh, prescient and, and important to revisit a Dickens story in 2020 or 2019 when you were writing that? Yes, most definitely. And like the the austerity that we've had, I mean, this was even before COVID and stuff was even an, yeah. a, an idea in any of our heads when I was starting to work on this. But yeah, the, the Conservative government, I mean, there's a fantastic poem that Charles Dickens wrote called These Good Old Tory Times. And oh, wow. uh, it's big. You could read it and it's out. You think that somebody could have written that now. It's just all about uh, the old gentlemen all helping each other's uh best interests uh it's all about um digging in each other's pockets and not looking you know it's it's and it's Mm -hmm. funny and it's cutting uh and it's a it's an it's an everlasting truth of the uh, when the country is run by people who serve each other and serve their friends 
Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's not called the Old English Tory Times. It's called the Fine Old English Gentleman. That's the name of the poem. Okay, yeah. Googled it because I didn't want to tell you the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I, I won't read the whole thing to you because it's Charlie. So obviously we'd be here all day. It's really <laughs> long. But uh, I, I put a tune to it recently and I keep meaning to do something. Oh, wow. It. Um, but I did it for my own thing, but I don't know what's going to happen. It'll just sit in my pocket until something happens uh, where <laughs> I'll use it. Um, but it goes, I'll sing you a new ballad and I'll warrant it first rate of the days of that old gentleman who had that old estate when they spent the public money at a bountiful old rate on every mistress pimp and scamp at every noble gate. And it's just Jeez. all this stuff. The good old laws were garnished well with gibbets, whips and chains, uh, all this stuff about this, you know, cutthroat elite, you know, protecting their, you know, each other and themselves yeah. and uh, spending, spending everybody's money. It's, but like, yeah, it's, Christ, it's, it's a sad, yeah. it's a sad truth that there's a lot of things that are happening today. We've gone backwards um, in the last few years, you know, yeah, we didn't yeah. need food banks five years ago. And now yeah. there are there are food banks within walking distance of my house in four different mm-hmm. ways. I could go to I could walk to four different food banks. They're yeah. everywhere. And that is because we have we are living in that kind of world that that astonishingly that Charles Dickens would have recognized. Well, it's actually worse now. I mean, I read uh, not too long ago that the the wealth gap is now wider than it was when Dickens was writing. Christ. So it's actually even worse now yeah. than what Dickens was writing about. And what Dickens wrote about when I was a kid, you know, learning about Oliver Twist at school and that kind of thing. Mm. It was it was a world away. It was, my yeah. God, I can't believe things used to be like that. Yeah. And here we are in 2020 saying, God, didn't they have it good in Dickensian times? Like, yeah. it's I- it's terrifying. And I can always think of a Charles Dickens quote for everything. You know how some people can yeah. say, oh, there's a Shakespeare's quote for everything. And there is. But like <laughs> yes. when that Marcus Rashford thing was happening that you mentioned and when they voted uh, the majority against uh, paying for school meals, I thought of that mm-hmm. line from A Christmas Carol. Are there no workhouses? Yeah. Are there no, yeah, prisons? There no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Well, they better, yeah. you know, die and get on oh, with yeah. it and if, the surplus yeah, population. Yeah, many would rather die. Mm-hmm. It's just this thing of like, you know... <sighs> There are these little people and they need to, this old Tory idea of they need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, they need to sort themselves out. Um, yeah. So if we feed them now, they'll never know the, yeah, the value right. of what we're giving them or whatever the nonsense is that they All push. the nonsense. Um, it's just, yeah. yeah. So Charles Dickens would have recognised a lot of that stuff that's happening now. So I think to resurrect him for my dinner party, I think he'd yeah. have a few things to say about it. I guess his first question would be, are the bastards still at it? And you'd have to be, yeah. oh, sorry, <laughs> yeah, they are, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. God. He's he's an amazing choice of a guest, an absolutely brilliant way to mm. start off your dinner party. And your next guest is mm. someone equally fascinating, I think. Uh, someone who, in your words, is an expert in everything and seems to have no specialist subject. Yeah. He's an author of books covering a range of subjects from travel to language, science and history. Mm. You've got Bill Bryson coming to dinner. Yeah. I I just can't believe he's real. And I want to just, <laughs> just, you know, I mean, you were sort of saying to me earlier, like, and people say this a lot to me and I, I blush every time, but people always go, you do so many things, you know, why do you, how can you do so many things? Um, and it's, you know, but the, the many things I do are all under the same umbrella, 
you know, I, I write, I make, I try to make theatre, I, I act, uh, you know, it's, sure. it's all under the umbrella called storytelling. So songs are included in that and plays are included in that. But this guy, I mean, how, <laughs> how? I, I, the only understand, I don't believe it. I think he might be like the quantum leap guy. He's just like lived a million lives. <laughs> Uh, or, or you know, he's he's actually a thousand years old, and he's got some sort of genetic thing that makes him, you know, not age very quickly. But I just don't believe that somebody has the time to be. I mean, for God's sake! I mean, I found a list of all his books. I haven't read them all. I've read about four of them. But like, yeah, just what books about language? Books about travel? He's done one about the human body. Have you? The that one is astonishing. And in that book, he's speaking like a scientist like an expert scientist. Yeah. Um, he's done a book, a book on Shakespeare, which uh, is absolutely brilliant. There are so many books on Shakespeare, but Bill Bryson's is the one because he sort of does it a bit like an autobiography, but it's really oh, yeah. detail of the world that he lived in. But, I mean, for God, what, how? <laughs> I, street I have to make a horrible admission, Liv, and say that I haven't read any Bill Bryson Oh, so, um, what am I missing out on? Oh, for God's sake. I mean, I've only read about four of them and I've just gone, this is silly. This man's not real. You know, the way that people say Shakespeare didn't actually write all of Shakespeare's plays. It's yeah. like that. He just, I mean, what from the little I've read about him, he kind of goes, I'm going to write a book about this now. And then he mm -hmm. dedicates a year or something, a year or two years just mm -hmm. to that. So, with the body, this is, uh, if you want one. I would totally recommend your first one to either be the Shakespeare one, or if you're not mm -hmm. a big literary head, then the body, a user's guide, I think it's called. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and uh, the body is just beautifully detailed explanations of how our whole body works. I have the audio book of it. Mm. And just, I've been on a lot of lockdown walks, just listening to Bill Bryson calmly explain how my the lobes in my brain work or how my retinas <laughs> work <laughs> or how the immune system works. Um, yeah. And he's, a, I mean, just a genius, but I guess, and then Shakespeare is, as I said, it's like, it's like a beautiful autobiography. It's just a, or not autobiography, it's like a biography, just explaining yeah. the life of the man and all this stuff about language. There's a, there's a, is it Mother Tongue is one of his? Yeah, The Mother Tongue is this amazing book about language and how language has evolved, basically how language works. Mm. Um, they're all fascinating non-fiction books. I just need him to come to my Pelican House dinner so I can go, <laughs> look, I struggle. I really struggle with the, I mean, I love doing lots of different things. I have quite a short attention span, which is why I always have lots of different projects on the go. People think it's because sure. I'm really clever and I'm not, I'm not clever. I'm really so, <laughs> I'm so flighty and scatty that I, I get very quickly bored and I go, ah, what? And I get, I get, I've got terribly short attention span. So I could, I, you know, I'll spend an hour on something and I'll go, ah, and then I'll have to spend two hours on something else and then come back to it. And I, and I go, and I get bored of things quickly. So I go, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to write a musical. And then the next day I'll go, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, cause I just, cause I'm a child, you know, who can't settle on anything. That's why I have lots of different projects going on. Um, and also because I have yes disease. So if somebody says, oh, Liv, would you like to do, do something? <laughs> I'll go, yes. 
like the way you said about the stand-up thing. I'm going to do that now, not because you asked me and I said yes. Um, but that's not how Bill Bryson is. I think I just don't understand how I don't get it. I just don't get it. He has to leave his brain to science and he has to sit and have... <laughs> I don't know what his tipple would be. I don't know if he'd be a port and sherry guy. I think we'll have to get port and sherry for Charles, and I think mm. Bill might want a pint of an ale of some kind. Yeah, he's yeah, American, that does seem but... like it's up his street. A nice real ale. Uh, he's American, but he lived in the UK for quite a bit. And I just need to go, look, how do you give your whole mind, because this is something I struggle with a bit, um, how do you give your whole entire consciousness to one yeah. thing for a really long time? Because even when I was writing Bleak House, I was... It was peppered. I spent about a year and a half working on it, but I was doing other bits and bobs at the same time. Uh -huh. um, not just because of the necessity, but of like having to do jobs and work and earn money, but just because I don't think I could do that. I don't think I'd give my yeah. whole head to one thing. And then another whole thing. I would love to be able <laughs> to do that. And I just want to know how he does it. He is, he's, he sounds like such an incredible man. His biography with the Royal Society uh, says he's driven by a deep curiosity for the world we live in and curiosity i think is just the number one most attractive quality in any person particularly a creative person yeah uh, is that what you most admire with him or is there another quality or aspect to his personality or work that you're just floored by um yeah i think it's that and i think it's the fact that he he, he treats the whole world uh as his sort of drawing board you know, he can, he goes fully into, you know, to, to learn everything about the human body and then to learn everything about Shakespeare. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> it's like there's there are no boundaries. And I, I feel mm -hmm. that I, I love what the world and the industry I work in so passionately um, mm -hmm. that it's that it's quite it's quite unhealthy um, <laughs> how obsessed <laughs> I am with story making and theatres. But, but it would it's beyond my comprehension that I I could just go, I'm going to learn all about yeah. DNA now. And I'm going to, I'm going to write a book about that. And I'm going to spend two years learning about DNA. And then, then I'm going to go, Oh, then I'm going to spend two years learning about the Himalayas and this small group of people that <laughs> eat only this fruit or whatever, you know, just, he just is boundless. I think his horizons are limitless. And I think that that's really admirable. That's and that's really... what I would like to have. Yeah. It's an amazing quality. I mean, I'm sure you saw the news that in October, apparently he announced that he'd retired from writing books. Mm. Uh, but if, if you had him there at your mm. dinner party and you could pitch him one idea for one last book, <laughs> very selfishly, is there any topic you would love to see Bill Bryson tackle <gasps> in his way? Oh, my God. What a fantastic question. Um <laughs> Do you know, yeah, I, I, something that fascinates me, but I'm not clever enough to write about it or learn about it, which I think he might be. I'm just looking at his list to see if he hasn't already done one, because he could well have done, but I don't think he has. <laughs> yes, it sounds like he probably has. Probably but... has. Um, music. I, I make music oh, and I write yeah. songs, but um, I do it. I, I've always been a singer, so I just make up songs and then I write. Sometimes I write accompanying parts for them with instruments yeah. but uh, and I'm not very technically musically minded at all I do it all by ear so I'm not a musical genius by any means I just can make good tunes sometimes but I uh, am yeah. fascinated by the science of how music affects us that is something that oh, I find that is... like even my really I've got some really clever musical friends my my 
you were asking earlier about people that you you chime with when you're doing improvisation. Um, a really amazing mm -hmm. musician, very clever woman uh, called Ishani Perrin Panayagam, who um, plays with me. Oh, yeah, you guys did a show together, didn't we you? Did. Well, we did a, a few years ago. We did a, yeah. we did an improv musical improv show together, and she does a lot of musical improv, but she's also a fantastic musician and composer and uh, genius person. Mm. And I've talked talk to her about this, and um, it's you know it's a fascinating subject. The kind of the way that a bit of music can be funny, you know, yeah. like yeah, how, yeah, yeah. how, how <laughs> the fuck, how does that work? Or the way that sometimes when you're watching an advert, some cheesy advert or some corny film that you're not actually enjoying, but then the music makes you cry. It fools you into thinking that there is actual substance yeah. on screen, even when there isn't. Yeah. Um, the way that music can make you, you know, cheer you up, or the way that music can be cheerful, the way that you know, like, there's something fully beyond my comprehension, something fully mm -hmm. in the world of I don't believe in magic, but it's like magic. I, I, I have no understanding of how the human brain and music have evolved together in this way that we can mm -hmm. listen to a concerto and have all these feelings and that it can do all these things to us. The, I think Bill's the only person with the patience and the intelligence to fight, discover that, discover the secret of that and write a book about that. So that's what that I'd pitch in. such a brilliant idea for him. I mean, I think you need to start now a kind of change.org petition. Mm -hmm. for one last book from Bill. One Go. last book from Bill. Yeah. <laughs> wow. He, it's just incredible. I would love, I would love, love, love to to read that book. And definitely I am going to be going away and I would love to read his book on Shakespeare. Yeah, do it. It's it really, it's really joyful. I might read it again, actually. I, 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 I've learned a lot from it, but it's just, it's beautifully crafted. It's a great book. It's something I really love with this podcast is when there are kind of people that I'm, you know, aware of, and I'm aware of of how highly they're regarded, but I've just not really experienced the work. Mm. And I love being introduced and hearing people like you who are so passionate about the the people. I had it a couple of weeks ago when I was speaking to, uh, I don't know if you know Daniel Niels Roberts, brilliant, brilliant improviser from Ostentatious. Mm. Daniel's amazing, and he spoke so passionately about Leonard Cohen, and it just oh. made me immediately want to go away yeah. and start listening to Leonard Cohen. And I've started that now, and I'm really enjoying learning a bit more about Leonard Cohen and, and kind of experiencing that. And definitely Bill Bryson is someone who, yeah. I think Christmas break only a couple of weeks away, I am going to enjoy some Bill Bryson over December, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, it's very, very exciting. Mm -hmm. Another superb addition to your dinner party. And mm -hmm. in a running theme, you've got another amazing writer coming, another of Britain's <laughs> finest writers. They're almost There's all a definite writers. theme. <laughs> this person that. was a poet an essayist and a novelist his works mm. are like dickens more prescient than ever seemingly from political satire to horrifying visions of totalitarian dystopias this ta uh, this writer tackled some pretty big concepts to great acclaim you have got george orwell coming to your dinner party surely someone else has had george no one i can't believe no one's george. had george over do you know why? Know. Do you know? Do you know why I think people might not have had George over is because George was famously like not not super fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> he wouldn't be. He wouldn't be like, hey, let's all do shots. Let's all have a dance. Who's got? Who's gonna? Who's gonna get the guitar out and start singing? You know, don't look back in anger. It's not gonna be George. Um, 
George was, um, uh, George Orwell, bless him. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to have him over, I mean, apart from the fact I adore his, his work, um, I would yeah. have desperately liked, in, in, presumably in this magic dinner party place, we can sort of travel through time and things, can't we? If these oh, guys yeah, come in course. their prime, I'd just tell him to give up smoking and to <laughs> take a few more walks in the fresh air and to improve his, because the poor man, he had such ill health and he constantly smoked and he died far too young because of, yeah. you know, and he went through an awful lot of, of pain and it's really, really sad because... Yeah, he didn't really yeah. get the fame he deserved until, um, you know, after he died, really. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, no, I discovered George Orwell in the strangest way. Um, oh, yeah. it's, it's so, so fucking odd, right? But um, <laughs> so this is weird. This is a weird story. So uh, <laughs> I was allowed to, to read any books on the shelf at my, at my home as a kid. My mum encouraged me to read books for grown-ups from a young age. So I think she put Jane Eyre in my hands when I was like 10. Oh, wow. Um, and it took me ages to read it, but I loved it. But, you know, I've always had sort of, it's been an open door policy for the for the books. And I was constantly being told, I was brought up as an avid reader. So mum would be like, what book, have you finished your book? Go and find another book to read. You, you know, the, the rule is yeah. you've always got a book on the go. And I, um, and uh, I went to the bookshelf one day. I think I was about 13 years old, I think something like that maybe yeah uh-huh. that, that's about the age i was which is too young really but i saw 1984 on the shelf Ooh. and now the thing is i was born in 1984 and uh-huh. so that was my only reason for taking the book because <laughs> yeah. you know mum goes go and find another book and oh fuck, all right oh god what we're gonna do you know you see all this boring looking stuff and things like Bronte sisters and stuff like that don't mean anything to you when you're 13 years old and you want something fun that jumps off the page and none of those kind of grown-up books do but 1984 I was born in 1984 so that's going to be a reason for me to read this book (laughs) during this time so I started reading it and I loved it I didn't understand half of it you know I didn't really understand that book until I reread it again a few years later but um, during that time we moved house and I moved schools right and um, we went to I went to my new secondary school and it was literally day one of my new secondary school and we were in English class and I'm 13 years old so what's that year eight or year nine or something Mm -hmm. and everybody's doing book report things so people are taking turns to stand up and stand in front of the class and talk for 10 minutes about the book they've read mm-hmm. and uh they're all doing that and uh they're re- they're talking about things like you know oh, i don't know the babysitter's club or uh <laughs> yeah. a role or, or one of the more grown-up role doll books or you know uh, things yeah. things for 13 year olds that they've read and then uh <laughs> the teacher says to me you don't have to do this, Olivia, because we understand it's your first day. And I was like, I don't mind. And she said, do you have a book that you've been reading, you know, because you've just moved schools or yeah, do you have a book you want to tell us about it? And I was like, OK. <laughs> <laughs> and I stood up and told everybody about 1984 by George Orwell. And oh, it, my God. I don't know what the, the thing is. This all sounds really like the story of a child prodigy. I was not a brainy kid at all. I loved reading, but that was the only thing I was good at. Um, in that school, which I then stayed in, I became I was in the top group for English and the bottom group for maths for the entire time. Um, <laughs> nobody ever questioned how weird that was. I never passed my GCSE maths, by the way. I still have 
still, you know, terrible. It only it was only good at English. Had been shit at everything else. But yeah, I stood there and talked about 1984 like some sort of weirdo. I was like, so there's a man. That's the other thing because I was 13. I didn't really get the metaphor element of it really much. So I was, yeah. you know, because when you're that age, you read the story and just the story. Yeah, of course, um, you take it face value. You kind of just go, this is the story, and you don't think too deeply about anything else. So I was like, there's this man, and he has to get up every morning and do exercise because a big eye sort of camera tells him. And um, <laughs> he's sad, and he doesn't want to do the exercise every day. And then he meets a woman, and he really wants to, like kiss the woman but it's not allowed and they go in a forest and they have their these big boiler suits on um and then he's coughing he's got to cough you know like just i just sort of relayed all this information i don't know what they thought but that's how i discovered george orwell in that book and um reread it obviously wow. later and discovered how brilliant it was um animal farm i think is um a work of genius and he's sort of like a time i mean george orwell has mm -hmm. prophesied he basically prophesied the world we live in now yeah. So, so that's why I think it's worth digging him up, or however you. It's... How are you re getting these people back from the dead? Are you doing, <laughs> are you doing it responsibly, no... Connor? Oh, I didn't realize I would have to go out and get them. But <laughs> you, I guess you organized this whole thing. That's what I get for starting this podcast. You got to take the good with the bad. <laughs> Frankenstein-like thing. It all started out. It all started out as this cute podcast about dinner parties, and then I had to dig up George Orwell and and regenerate him. Um, so after you've no one else has gone into that, it in that much detail. Well, yeah, now we're, I think it's important that we solve it when you when you bring George Orwell back to life. However, you do it. Um, and hopefully he'll probably be in a bit of a bad state having been underground for as many years as he has. I would imagine but... so. He'll be ready for a drink. He'll be ready for a drink. I might tell him to give up smoking. I gave up smoking. So I'll tell him how I managed it and hope that he can do Excellent. the same. <laughs> and um, and I'll say, like, you know, you told the, the future. You saw into the future, yeah. George. How, you know, there's, how did you do there's that, There's a man? commonality, isn't there, between Orwell and, and Dickens? Like, both fierce uh, social commentators also obsessed with class and poverty. And indeed, Orwell actually cited Dickens as a big influence on his work. Mm, mm. Uh, Orwell was, was one of these really, f one of the, the most fascinating choices that you made. I mean, they're all great. But Orwell's the one that I kind of wasn't sure what I thought of him as a person. He sort mm. of seemed to want to be poor because <laughs> it would give him a perspective from which he could write. Like there was a story I read about him where he tried to, in 1931, uh, he got himself deliberately arrested because he wanted to experience Christmas in prison. <laughs> and the authorities didn't think that his drunk and disorderly conduct was an or imprisonable offence. So they let him go after two days. But like he wanted to spend Christmas in prison so that he could write about how hard it was to spend Christmas in prison. That's so. And I think he wanted to be poor so that he could write about how difficult it is to be poor. God's and he always sort of wanted to get these sort of manufactured misfortunes to write <laughs> from an authentic perspective. What do you think he would be like as a guest? You've said that you you don't think he would be the most fun. Mm, I, but I think, do you think he would be mm, interesting? Do you think he yeah. would be intense? What, what do you think he would be? I think he'd be intense. I mean, I thought about the combo when you sort of asked me for the five. I thought I've deliberately made sure that there are some people that would be jolly enough and chilled mm -hmm. enough that we could all get that we could all get George kind of out of his shell 
you sure. know. And Bill, I imagine I have to, I'd like to get to know Bill Bryson, and he's one of the few people who's alive on my list. Um, sure, but, you know, yeah. I imagine Bill might be a bit serious, but you know, he's also quite laid back. I bet Charles would have just been amazing at, at, at social chat. He was good at talking to anybody. So, um, and the other people who are coming up are very good at that too. So, I think hopefully yeah. between us, we'd get George to calm down, lighten up a little bit. I get the impression he was a bit of a grumpy sod, but also he was a sod who'd gone through a lot and was in a lot of pain and had a lot of rage and, you know, mm. going on. So I think, you know, I suppose I'd let him have a fag if he really wanted, but I'd talk about, you know, let's, 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 <laughs> let's, 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 let's take it easy, man. I think I'd give him a chamomile tea before anything else. <laughs> And I think I'd put a bit of extra salad in the starter. I just got the impression the guy had really bad health and didn't look after himself. You know, yes, he just needs a bit of a bit of love, a bit of lightening up, and a bit of loving. I'd get a bit of Joni Mitchell on the record player, and we'd all get up and have a bit of a, a bit of a sway. This is a side of George Orwell I would love to see. No, this is very very interesting. Mm. I mean, is there is there a particular element of his work because it is intense? I mean. I don't think I've ever felt complete devastation like I did when I saw the stage production of 1984. Mm. I made the mistake of getting it for my wife for her on her birthday. <laughs> we went to 1984 because I hadn't read it and I thought it might be an interesting show. And then we were going to a cookery class afterwards and it was just like, what's the fucking point? That is a brilliant combination. <laughs> Dystopia. And then this is how you tempura a prawn. <laughs> It was the weirdest day, and I was so completely broken after 1984. <laughs> you know, but what? it's so in. <laughs> Let's create an experience where you watch an Orwell with a cookery class. So you're watching 1984, <laughs> but you're having to make gruel, uh, and you're having to Amazing. get. You know, you have, to, you have to eat all the weird shit. Um, Animal Farm, and you get like all different pork pork dishes. chops at the end. So, yeah. <laughs> eat all the animals in like a tasting menu it um, would be such a unique dining experience cook along with orwell cook along with orwell oh my god you've got to do it uh god that's so funny i've forgotten your question because it was just we've just laughed about that so much did you i've almost forgotten it as well <laughs> um what it but was orwell, about, he's, <laughs> but, well, about the kind of the qualities of his work because it, it is so intense yeah and it's so layered and mm. there's there's so much going on in the subtext mm. and everything but how how does how does this work make you feel like i felt so completely broken after 1984 <laughs> didn't feel the same way with animal farm because again i think i was studying it yeah. and the 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 kind of i guess the passion in it is sort of diluted a bit when you're mm. really studying something so much but when you engage with Orwell's work particularly now as an mm. adult like what does he make you feel um I think there's a presence and a nowness nowness there's a word that Ooh, I yeah. just coined <laughs> there's probably a really good academic word but I'm gonna say nowness I like nowness and yeah. commit to it uh even though obviously that he was writing when he was but it seemed always everything was sort of slightly futuristic there's a very mm. much i'm talking to you right now vibe not dissimilar to charles's i'm at your elbow thing but almost mm. a bit even though and he was always brave enough to i think i've learned as a writer from him i've learned about the story the, the story being served is more important than what stories traditionally are so he's not afraid mm. of a of an ending that is not happy um but mm. when, whenever i've reached the end of his books or his essays I felt like jumping out of my seat and and 
running really fast towards you know the world it's kind of like you it's like a launch pad um there's so much mm. rage like i read uh, the lion and the unicorn essay recently mm-hmm. it was really weird i wanted you were saying how do you find ideas and i would i had a bit of a lull of going i want to write a play and i haven't got my idea yet so i sort of cast a net out to find random things to inspire me mm. and i read this essay the lion and the unicorn um and on a very odd trajectory, it did help me have an idea for the play that I wrote. But it was, um, he starts saying, uh, as I write, highly civilised human beings are flying overhead trying to kill me. Um, he'd written the whole essay um, during the war in the 19, mm-hmm. uh, 1940 or 1941, he's writing it. And um, there's uh, an air raid going on, I think. There's, you know, there's, there's planes flying above him mm-hmm. uh, as he writes an essay. Uh, and it's a furious essay about what's wrong with our country. And it could be now. It could be now. Um, yeah. And it's a kind of, it's a very call to arms kind of thing. It's less pretty than Charles Dickens thing. I mean, Charles Dickens was was an entertainer first. And, yes. you know, we talked about how theatrical he was. And uh, his characters were funny and warm and beautiful. Um I haven't read as much of George Orwell's work as I would like. The ones that stay strongest in my mind are Animal Farm and 1984 and, and that essay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have read other things, but not as not so recently. And there's a mm-hmm. there is he's not asking you to like him, and he's not asking you to like his characters, and he's he, and he's unapologetic. And I think that's uh, you know, from the point of view of as a writer who's got a literary agent who wants to get work and wants to get employed, I think that's really stupid. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I sent I sent a, I sent a, a taster like a one pitch idea to my agent recently. The way I tend to do it is I write a one page pitch and I go, "Shall I write this?" And then she goes, "Yes or no." And um, yeah. her feedback was, "I don't like any of these people. <laughs> We've got to like some of these people." Um, and she said, "We can't do you know." There's a lot of rage and sadness at the moment. And, uh, you know, let's look for things that aren't just rage and sadness. Yeah. He was not afraid. He was not. He wrote precisely what he wanted to fucking write. And there was yes. a lot of there was a lot of dislikable, unlikable things. His protagonists are not always very likable. Um, uh-huh. You kind of care deeply for them. You care for Winston. I cared so deeply for Winston. Yes. My heart broke for him, but you don't like him. No, that's a good point. Um, yeah. And I've I've always wanted to do that. Uh, you know, my my I've always tried to nail the in in new original work I've I've done the protagonist that we don't like that we that we that we care about but we don't like. Yeah, him. Uh, he does oh, that right. really it's, really really it's well. Such a such a ballsy thing to write yeah. someone who yeah is isn't ultimately likable. Um, yeah, and I mean he he wasn't afraid as well even as a journalist to. Mm. To like ruffle feathers like he, he had a falling out with hg wells over dinner one evening about comments that he'd made about hg wells in an article and just refused to apologize for nice. so like he and you know he um quite uh well it was quite open that he was sort of a bit of a philanderer mm. he cheated on his wife and then after she died in 1945 he proposed to at least four other women and this <laughs> is someone who died in 1949 so like four more proposals in four years. So as a person, he's the one person at the dinner party who I think it would take the most effort to yeah. to like him and get on with him. I mean, what what kind of behavior would you expect from George Orwell? 
really curious to know. That's one of the reasons I'd invite him. I, I would expect, I could be wrong though, that he'd be pretty quiet and that he'd be, mm-hmm. you know, he'd require bringing out of his shell a little. But mm-hmm. I also think that he would not be polite and he would speak his mind and he'd join in if he was, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think some of, and as I said, I think some of the other people who I've invited would be good at asking him the right questions and, you know, and get it. But mm-hmm. um, no, I think he'd be cool. I think it'd be interesting. Um and I, I, as you said, I've got a lot of writers here because I want to get tips from all of them. This is a purely selfish <laughs> act of wanting to be mentored. Well, hey, it's your dinner party. Why the hell not? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, speaking of other writers, I think it's yeah. another great opportunity to to welcome your fourth guest. Mm-hmm. Another writer who's won yeah. much acclaim, possibly one of Canada's greatest exports, <laughs> if not their greatest indeed. Her work's been adapted for TV. She's written poetry, novels, essays. She's written for children. She's written graphic novels. She's an extraordinary creative mind who's won the Booker Prize on two occasions. You've got Margaret Atwood yeah. coming to your dinner party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The men. What a brilliant the, choice. The men have been. We've got. We've only got women now remaining. Um, yes. <laughs> I didn't want a purely male-dominated uh, dinner party, but um, yeah, yeah, Margaret Atwood. I just think she's. Uh, I just think she's a pretty fucking cool woman she's and properly badass she's properly yeah. badass um something that kind of i haven't read enough of her work really to be uh, before everyone comes over to the pelican house i'll probably swat up and and, and read some of the work <laughs> uh you know so i don't embarrass myself um but um yeah i think my thing about her that made me really notice her was when she talked about writing the uh, handmaid's tale and she said everything in this mm-hmm. in this book is is true because uh, everything that happens to the women in this book does happen to women somewhere in the world. And uh, I pocketed that. I put that directly into my pocket and stole it. And, um, (laughs) and then a play that I wrote, which I have not yet had made by anybody, but that I want very badly to, um, which was, it was partly Orwell helped and and Margaret helped because um, I just sort of imagined a a situation uh, in the, slightly in the future, um, mm-hmm. but I but I made that the rule, where absolutely everything had to be something that does wow. happen in the world, and it's a really cool rule because you, I, I really think writing with a little bit of restriction, is is the best thing to do. You can't just go, Wah! you can't just sit there and yeah. start writing words without uh, a focus and some some things that limit you in some ways. Yes. Um, and in the, in the world of a play, the place and the time and the people do that to an extent. But uh, if you give yourself a rule like that, that's really specific, but you can be very free and interesting within it. And so that's kind of when that's I heard so that true. from her, I was like, that's that's really cool. That's really specific and that's really useful and important. Yeah. Um, she doesn't seem to get her feathers easily ruffled. She gets a lot of criticism. Um, she had to share mm. her Booker Prize. Yes. Which I still don't know how I feel about. Those two women, they should have just picked one of them. Uh, it really annoys me that. I just don't know why. It just really pissed me off. It's like, why can't... That's not the point. You don't... That's not the point. I don't have a Booker Prize then. Um, if you're going to go, oh, let's both of them have it. No. And I sure she would have been fine. She wouldn't have minded losing uh, at all. Um, you know, it's just really, really silly. Uh, that really annoyed me. She doesn't seem to get her, ruffle, her feathers ruffled by anything. Um, she uh, it's just cool she's a cool woman just cool she is very very cool she 
speak so interestingly about the genres of her work and about some of the labels that are attached to her work. She often rejects uh, the idea that her work is feminist. Mm. She prefers to use the term social realism mm-hmm. um, in some of her work where she, you know, like Orwell, seems really obsessed about speculating about what the future might look like kind of technologically and societally. Mm. Um, but she rejects the term science fiction. She prefers to use speculative fiction mm. because she believes that things she she's written kind of may be possible in the near future. Yeah. Um, she she seems like almost as interesting a person to speak to about the not just the content of her work, mm. but about the motivations for her work as well. And you've you mentioned this when you sent me over your list. You you had a very specific question about what motivates her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I would find it really really interesting to talk to her about where she begins. Um, she mm-hmm. seems to have a real specificity that I, you know, don't have. So uh, my my other half's always sort of telling me this is the opposite of what I was saying about Bill Bryson earlier. I was like, it would be amazing to do everything, and now I'm going. It would be, <laughs> wouldn't it be amazing to do one thing really well? It's like my my other half's always saying, like, what do you do? You have to pick one. You could, you know, and do that really well rather than doing, you know. Oh, a song here and then a show and then a play here and then a totally different unrelated sort of thing here. Um, but it's because, as I say, I kind of get I'm sort of magpie like with my uh, <laughs> things that I that I find exciting that I want to go for. Um, Margaret Atwood just seems centred and grounded and specific. And she's done that thing, which a lot of women writers do really well. Hilary Mantel's done this really well. Um, J.K. Rowling did this really well. I've kind of going... This is my very long journey and I'm going to see mm-hmm. it through in detail to the end. And it's specific and it's and it's uh, inspired by truth. Um, mm. And, I, you know, she just has that kind of. I'd, I'd like to know if she's if she woke up one day as a young woman and went, I'm going to write this and it's going to be and it's going to have this long journey to it, you know, in the way that the mm-hmm. Testaments has carried on from. The Handmaid's Tale, yeah. um, and all of her poetry. You know, it's funny that she doesn't call herself a feminist. It's there's there's we don't have to agree with um, politically and 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 on, on terms of things like gender and feminism with all the people that we have at the Pelican House for dinner. Um, mm-hmm. If George Orwell's going to get pissed off with somebody like he did with H.G. Wells, we can just go, guys. Let's just <laughs> why don't we go out on the balcony for a few minutes and look at the pelicans? Because <laughs> that's very soothing, and you can't be having a row about. about what feminism is or 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 social change if well her reasons for sort of not wanting to use the term feminist are really interesting she sort of shies away from it because of its various connotations like some Mm. people wear the feminist badge proudly like i Mm. i very proudly say i'm a feminist not that i should be proud of it but you know Mm. i don't shy away from it whereas some people really struggle with the word because so many people use it with such vitriol yeah but what what is your take on her work? Do you consider it to be feminist? Uh, yeah, but I mean, I go I go very round and round and round on this subject because I've I also say I'm a feminist, but then occasionally, like, I can't remember who I read recently saying, "Why do we have to have a word for that?" Because, mm-hmm. for example, there isn't really a word that says I'm against racism. You're either racist mm-hmm. or you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't 
exactly one word that says I'm against homophobia. You're either homophobic or you're not. And mm-hmm. this, I'm not saying this is what I think. I'm just saying this is something that's recently yeah, entered my yeah. my head. Is that feminists sort of, imp- it reminds us all that there's this battle yeah. to, be, to be fought. It kind of says, okay, you're either a feminist or you hate women. And you kind of go, why, how, how are we, instead of going, look, we're feminists. Why don't we turn everything around and look at the sexists and make it about them? I don't know. It's it, maybe it belongs in the similar yeah. way that, for example, that guy died recently, the um, the murderer who'd been in prison oh, for a very long time. Uh, oh God, the the was it the Yorkshire Ripper? Uh, yeah, uh, um, and when he died, uh, his his name and his face were all over the papers, and um, people have said, "Don't say his name; say the names of the women." I I guess yeah. I guess. Um, a lot of my, I, I don't really know where I'm going with this. It, it's tiring. Being a feminist, being a woman, being a woman yeah. is tiring. And something that really yeah. spoke to me about The Handmaid's Tale, it, obviously it's set in this slightly futuristic world. All the things that mm-hmm. happen to the women do happen. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, it resonates with that thing of, it's exhausting. It is exhausting being a woman in this world. Um, yeah. My my version of The Handmaid's Tale was uh, the video I did called You Know All the Signs, which is about a woman being mm-hmm. pestered in a pub by a man because I don't have quite the intellect that Margaret Atwood has. So uh, <laughs> instead of spending years on a clever, clever, huge thing, uh, beautiful written long narrative, I made a video in a pub in Streatham, um, which you can find on YouTube now. Um, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. It's exhausting constantly having to justify uh, all of your achievements in correlation with your gender. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it has, there's a, there's a rage. There's a rage that is impossibly hard to articulate. Um, the, the play Amelia that was on in the West End last uh, year, um, which uh, really, really articulated that well, um, all about that kind of, uh, that astonishing, astonishing fury that, that we feel that's come mm-hmm. from years and years and years and years uh, of, of, of having to, of having to fight for our place. Yeah. Having to fight for our bodies. Um, uh, Morgan Lloyd Malcolm wrote that play, by the way, uh, Amelia, and you can still catch it on a stream. Uh, I think uh, online. Oh, it was on at the Globe, and then it was on West End. Um, there's a lot of work that comes, particularly in the theatre recently, that's come out of female fury. We're just so sick of it. We're just so angry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because of all the years of being told to be quiet and told to be calm, um, and so. If you identify, if you say I'm a feminist, there's a million things wrapped up in that. And that yeah. fur- that fury is there. Um, mm-hmm. And that fury is really uncomfortable for a lot of people, women and men. Um, so some of the people that say I'm not a feminist are saying it because they're uncomfortable with that. They're uncomfortable with the real, real rage that I yeah. fully, fully feel that I kind of... I used to think the burning the bras thing that happened in the 70s was funny. And then in the last sort of four or five years, I've fully understood it um i i fully lost my shit at a man who told me um told me to smile in the street once he must have thought i was 
Oh, mental but he went uh i think he, he sort of told me to give a little smile and i went why and i said it like a bat <laughs> and it was like a banshee came out of hell <laughs> and came through my throat and reached out and murdered this man and my eyes went aflame and i got a proper rage the rage you could it's triggered by something like that. You can't even, I can't even, and I'm not quite yeah. old enough to be menopausal yet. Um, but this, you know, a lot of people are uncomfortable with that rage. They associate the word feminism with that rage. I I don't associate it with that, but I do feel I'm so fucking sick of having to, I'm so fucking sick of this conversation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so I wonder if Margaret Atwood feels that. I'd be really interested to ask her about that actually when we're there. And also yeah. we'll be there with a lot of men. We'll be there with um, men who are better and worse with women. For example, Bill Bryson, I'm, he, all of his stuff is nonfiction. Um, mm -hmm. George Orwell had quite a masculine angle on a lot of his writing. I think mm -hmm. Charles Dickens was one of the best men to write women. I think he wrote women better than than a lot of men can um yeah and the the woman of bleak house esther summerson became the center and protagonist of my version of it and i was in huge admiration of how well he wrote that woman not all men mm -hmm. can do it um mm -hmm. margaret atwood's atwood's work is very feminine centric and she's written some a whole variety of stuff um but i'd be interested to talk with her about what she thinks that word feminism means and yeah. how the female story needs to be told and i think she and charles and she and George would have a really interesting chat about that. I bet they would. Um, it's it's hugely fascinating, and as you've said, that that rage and the the resignation and the exhaustion that accompanies the the fact that these things are still relevant. Mm -hmm. I wonder how she would have felt. Hopefully, kind of proud, but I would imagine a huge amount of frustration probably yeah. came with the fact that just after Trump's election uh, in 2017, the most read book in the world, apparently, mm. or, or certainly the most widely sold book worldwide, was The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, we're talking about uh, 32 years after it was released. No, you can't believe that. We f I frequently forget that fact. Yeah, um, it was the most read book after Trump's election. Testaments obviously followed it. Mm. Um, apart from the taking away the sort of depressing reality that accompanies the fact that that book was the most read for that reason mm -hmm. and for mm -hmm. the the kind of rise in sort of populism misogyny mm -hmm. um it's quite an extraordinary skill to write something yeah that is as prescient if not even more so 32 years after you've actually written it it's like that uh orwellian thing of almost being able to see into the future margaret atwood has that same mm -hmm. vision and timelessness in her work. I mean, yeah. you can't really teach that. No, no. I, I, I find her just ex extraordinary, and I would, I would like her to teach me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, in the Pelican House, uh, <laughs> I would, I would like her to give me a short, a short workshop, a short tutorial. Um, that would be quite something. She's a yeah, and so modest One... and so calm. I'd like to be as modest and calm as as her. She's just got such. Um brilliant brain which is mm. a really basic way of saying it but <laughs> yeah. she really does have such an extraordinary mind uh, I mean I love uh, I, I'm not very familiar with a lot of her work actually but mm. I love reading about the versatility of her work I mean I mentioned some of the stuff she's been involved with like graphic novels writing for kids essays yeah. adult fiction uh, she did, uh, I've got it downstairs on my bookshelf. I hope to get to it very soon. 
the uh, adaptation of The Tempest, which I'm mm. sure in your storyteller globe capacity you would love to read. Mm. I think it's called Hagseed. But she's just got such a brilliant variety and there's a, a kind of multi... I don't know... A, so many different perspectives to her creativity and she yeah. seems like such an interesting person. Um, is there an aspect or a quality in her work that you particularly prize? Um, it sounds so funny, but class, she's so classy. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Her poetry is, I, I write poetry to, for, just for you know because I, I enjoy writing it I would love to be the kind of poet she is she's mm-hmm. she's I, I suppose she's one of those writers that she's got this calmness and uh she sort of slides very carefully into your mind and finds something that's already there mm. do you know what I mean like I find that with her yeah, poetry yeah. she kind of just goes and it's almost like you're having that thought yourself as you write as you read what she's written yeah. Um, and it's very different from the styles of the other writers that we have at the dinner party. So, you know, who who are yes. who are very masculine in their styles, you might say, although that is a funny word, isn't it? Masculine and feminine. But they have a way of going, bomb, here I am. And this is what I'm telling you, um, mm-hmm. which I also love and admire. But Margaret Atwood, yeah, in the, w- the work of hers that I have read, and it hasn't been enough because I haven't read all of her stuff for kids and stuff. But I've read her poetry and The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. And there's the way of sort of, it's almost like you've, it's almost like she's found you in the middle of this thought that you're already having. Yeah. And as you read the stuff, it's like, oh yeah, of course, I kind of always knew that, but I hadn't felt it or said it out loud yeah. with you yeah. until now. Um, and yeah, I just find that so damn classy and so damn cool. She's just got this cool, soft, calm yet at the same time, incredibly strong energy, which I, I dig because yeah. I would like to be as cool and classy as that rather than sort of all bouncy and all over the place and, <laughs> uh, and, and, and jumping around the way that I am. Well, I mean, there is a, a definite comparison to be made with the, the variety of work that you do and the variety <laughs> of work that she does. You, you both bounce around different things. Uh, so I, I think you're doing yourself a disservice there. I mean, one other whole different area that she... Has done. I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that she invented uh, something called the long pen. Like she's an inventor as well. As Fucking if what? Being what? A poet and everything isn't What's cool enough. What's the long pen? She, she invented this thing that allows you to sign something or write in ink remotely. What? Uh, so it's like using a robotic now? arm or something. But basically, she yeah, she's like. So I think you write on a like a tablet or a a pad or something, but and it operates this right. and a pen somewhere. So, you know, how, in theory, how? if you're, you know, moving to America or something and you need to sign a lease on your new home, but you're oh, not there yet, you could God. sign it in an office in London and you've signed the contract in New York. But like she invented this thing. She of just she did. had an idea for it. So she invented it. Like oh that's God. the mind you're working with here. I'm a bit worried that I'm the least cool and least interesting person <laughs> at the dinner party. I'm really quite anxious Not that I'm just going to su- I'm probably, to be honest, genuinely, if this genuinely did happen, I'd go to the bathroom with my phone and hide. 
I'd be too anxious about the whole thing. I'd I'd ser- I'd serve some food and I'd just go away and I'd I'd quietly cry <laughs> while Charles Dickens and George Orwell and Margaret Atwood had the most brilliant intellectual conversation in the Pelican House. But and I would just isn't be like, that Whoa. the right way round? Because imagine <laughs> if you organised a dinner party just so you were the most interesting person in the room. I should have done that. Damn that it. would be narcissistic to the point of like mm. terrifying. Uh, yeah. I'm going to totally do that very next well time. With these people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One thing that I did read about Margaret Atwood as well uh, was that now, when I was reading about Bill Bryson, mm. I found out he has 11 honorary doctorates. Oh, for fuck's sake. Which was just ridiculous. I was like, <laughs> 11 honorary doctorates. Then I got to Margaret Atwood. Oh, no. And Bill Bryson looks positively. She's got a few, hasn't she? How many has she's she got? got 24 Connor, honorary many, degrees. Connor, how many uh, honorary doctorates do you have? I, I, not as many as Margaret. <laughs> I've got I've got one degree and it's a BA in performing arts from the University of Winchester. Yay! Can you imagine how inadequate I would feel if I was with Margaret Atwood or Bill Bryson? <laughs> <laughs> They're just astonishing people. Uh your your final guest though. Mm. If you were worried about feeling out of your depth or uncomfortable with anybody, I think this person would sort you right out. She, they're she they're cut from a different cloth yeah. from the other guests, but she's totally. equally fantastic in her field. She's an actor, comedian, writer, producer and director who's won critical acclaim for her comedic roles. But she's also a superb dramatic actor winning Best Actress at the 1997 Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. You're inviting a genuine national treasure, yep. Kathy Burke. I am. Um, <sighs> yeah. Do you know why uh, this is going to sound... Well, fuck it. I, <laughs> Kathy Burke is the only person who's coming to the Pelican House for dinner who I have actually have met. This and is so cool. When I met her in real life, I was so ab- appallingly overwhelmed with fangirldom that I, I was, I, I don't know what I said to the woman. Um, <laughs> I, I went to a press night of a really cool play um, in, at the Hampstead Theatre. This is years ago. Gosh, I can't remember how many years ago it was. But I went to I got to go to press night uh with my mate and uh my mate was cool and important and I wasn't. So my mate had cool and important <laughs> people to talk to after uh industry people. And I sort of and I that was back in the days when I smoked. Um and I was doing that thing where you're sort of hanging around and you don't know very many people, so you're trying not to look like a twat. Um, that that's one of the gifts that was one of the gifts of when I smoked that was one of the things that was really good about being a smoker is that you could go and have a cigarette and that would be like an actively you know a thing to be doing when yeah you're that's event. something you're doing I don't smoke yeah. anymore so I don't know what that what to do now I, I might take up crack or something like go and do a thing you know let's go and do would anyone like to shoot up oh hi you know something like that so I went out and had a cigarette um and uh stood around grinning and uh, somehow, I don't know how it happened, but I ended up in a conversation with a, a couple of people that included Kathy Burke. I think she, somebody knew somebody and somehow we're in the same little circle of people. And she wow. was so cool. And she put out her hand and said, hello, I'm Kathy. As if I didn't fucking know who she was. And um, <laughs> uh, this was back when I was being an actor and not doing great at that. I was just auditioning a lot and not really getting work and feeling very down about it and feeling very uh, lacking in confidence. And I'd written one play which had gone to the Edinburgh Fringe and bummed. It had just been like a bit of a bit of an expensive sort of 
shame. And um, it was fun, but we didn't, you know, we did, we, we barely made any money and it was all a bit, you know, ah. And I was just sort of thinking, I wish I could be a writer. I spent a lot of years going, I wish I could be a writer. And it took me a really long time to go, oh, I could, I could just write something and do it. Like it, it took me <laughs> ages to do that. Um, so I was being an actor and blah. And, and, and so I got into conversation with her. Uh, I didn't, I ha I'd had my last cigarette. She gave me another cigarette. Um, we, and we just sort of, you know, she was just a cool person who just, and, and, and she asked me uh, about, and I somehow mentioned this play and she just was sort of like, oh, you're a writer, you, you know, get, get out there, you know, write some stuff. She was just very cool and, um, sort of said oh yeah what you do is you, you get you you know and I have no idea why she was so kind to this random person who she met through somebody else standing outside of theatre having a fag in North London and she sort of said oh, you should get out. what you do is you try and get a, a, a literary agent and this is stuff that I should have known but I didn't know um you know I just sat there going oh I wish I could be a writer I didn't think about it and she went yeah yeah what you do is you get a writing agent uh, you send them some scripts, you know, and just put yourself out there. You've got to shove yourself at people, you know, and it'll happen. It'll happen. And then we also talked about the play and other stuff. And I think the chat I had with her was a few minutes long. And she let me bum a couple of cigarettes off her. Um, and I just remember thinking, <laughs> I just remember thinking, that's so fucking cool. She did not have to chat with me. She, You know, she didn't mm -hmm. know who I was. She's an incredibly, whenever I've listened to her being interviewed, um, as she's just... A real it sounds so stupid. She's a real person, but she she really is. And um, oh yeah, no, really, really is. Yeah. She's she a fucking good actor, really fucking good actor. Incredible. Um, and she came up uh, with the generation of actors that uh, through through youth theatre and through community based theatre with a lot mm -hmm. of other. Uh, I think Gary Oldman was one of her contemporaries. With yep. a lot of uh, you know from a mixture of different kinds of ordinary middle and working class backgrounds. Um, mm -hmm. And that is something I feel really passionately about. Um, I, I, but when I first sort of came out of drama school, the first stuff I was doing was teaching and I was teaching drama and stuff uh, mm -hmm. for a fantastic company called Theatre Peckham, who's still going. And I was doing a lot of community projects um, through them and, and other things that were all about like, let's get some kids who don't get to go to the theater to do some drama, to do some acting, to, to explore that. Mm -hmm. um, as the Tory government came in, the funding for all those kinds of things got swiftly yeah. cut. I was, you know, I was working on projects that then stopped existing. Um, as I've sort of grown up as my, as I've grown from being a, a drama school grad to a person who's trying to be an actor to a theater maker writer, I've just seen doors closing more and more yeah. um yeah. to the to the next Kathy Burks to the to the to the yeah. next generation and she and she's um the other thing that's really cool about her I mean I'd love to talk with her about that and I'm hoping that you know she'd have some really interesting things to say about that she's just she's does the other thing that all of these other people in our party have done which I really want to be able to do is she just calmly goes oh yeah I'll try that you know, yeah. she she did a fantastic job uh, directing uh, an Oscar Wilde play a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, she played that fa fantastic part in um, this year's Love, and and she uh, has done comedy, brilliant comedy, um, and she's done serious drama as well. Mm -hmm. um, she can just calmly and an another amazing to thing she's done yeah. in the last couple of years uh, is apparently she's also a fantastic documentary maker. Yeah. She yeah. she's done the amazing Kathy Burke's All Woman, yeah, which yeah, yeah. we talked a lot about feminism and about mm. gender in relation to Margaret Atwood. 
surely they would, uh, the three of you, all, all six of you rather, mm. would have an amazing conversation on that area and, and Kathy Burke would contribute so fantastically I'd to be that. so interested to have the feminism conversation uh, with Margaret and with Kathy. We're all on a first name yeah. basis, aren't we, me and my friends? And the of course, yeah. Um, Kath and Mags. Kath yeah. and Mags and I would be chatting away. <laughs> I'd like to think that Charles and Bill and George would listen to us and learn some things. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, I have to. I have a feeling that Charles and Bill and George would all be good listeners. I wouldn't have invited the kind of men that would start yeah. going, well, listen, love, this is what I think. I don't think any of those guys would do that. <laughs> I think they're all really good listeners because that's why they're such good writers. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I think, Kathy, I would love to have that conversation about... Um, social change and feminism in, in, in storytelling with Kathy and with Margaret. And I think that we'd mm -hmm. probably have some, some interesting debate there. Um, and I also think that, I mean, apart from the fact that she's a fantastic storyteller and theater maker and uh, a very, very warm and wonderful and funny person, mm -hmm. um, we'd all be able to talk all five of us uh, about sim about things in common, about the idea of storytelling, which is what we all do. And I think that she mm -hmm. would loosen up George Orwell, man. If if anyone can get <laughs> yeah. just smiling, I just want to I just want to cheer George Orwell up. <laughs> oh, and who better to do it than Kathy Burke? She was your ace in the hole when you invited George Orwell. You knew you had Kathy Burke in your back pocket, and that I wasn't going to bring George totally if Kathy okay. wasn't coming. And that's how you do a proper dinner party. <laughs> that's how you do a dinner party. You know, you know, isn't it awful when you have a small? Not that I've had a small gathering now for over it. It's awful because we moved into our house and we didn't really have any parties for a bit because we were like, we're still getting used to our new house and we're making it lovely. And and when our house is perfect, we'll have a party. And then parties became illegal so we haven't had a party for a really long time but you remember when you had small gatherings you'd be like right if we're going to invite him let's invite yes. her because she'll loosen him up and oh don't invite that couple uh, just them because they'll be Ooh, let's get those guys and you know you balance the guests there's no way george would have been invited if it, what if kathy cancelled at the last minute and we just had george oh you're, and, you're putting you know, a lot of pressure on the other guests there yeah. to bring him out of his show yeah Kathy could do that yeah. so easily. She would liven things up as well. She wouldn't take any shit. Like, no. Not that anybody would necessarily be dishing it up, but mm. if George said something prickly or yeah. difficult or got on the wrong side of the, the debate on gender mm. and feminism or whatever, oh, she'd completely... Kathy would put him in his place. And she'd do it really cleverly. She's an incredibly intelligent woman and she's really well-read, yeah. really well-read. So, yeah. you know, she she's probably quite familiar with the work of a lot of these people and uh, she wouldn't be out of her depth. And I don't think she'd have my worry. I don't think she'd go to the loo and hide. I think she'd be like <laughs> happy to chat to anyone. And then if as soon as she was bored, she'd go, I've had enough now. I'm going home. Thanks. Um, yeah. And I, I, I admire that I want to be more... She's a grounded person to me. She seems a person yeah. who is entirely herself and entirely centred in being herself. And I admire that. And, and she'd put me at ease as well. If I started getting mm -hmm. nervous, she'd go, fuck's sake, come on, it's all right. Sit down. I think so, yeah. <laughs> You're all right. Don't be stupid. Got, she has know, got that extraordinary thing. thing where she seems so confident in yeah. herself and so happy in her own skin mm -hmm. in a way that... I envy it, and I'm sure a lot of people do. She's yeah. such a that that idea of kind of her being normal. I listened to her Desert Island Discs before. Yeah, we wasn't spoke. it extraordinary? Uh, oh, she was amazing, and that that was kind of put 
forward to at the very beginning like Mm -hmm. you know you're you're told all the time you're a normal person like does that ever bother you and she's like no it's fine like it'd be far worse to be told that I'm you know an elitist twat or something like that like being a normal person I'm quite happy with that as as you know as yeah descriptions go and what's funny is I mean it's it sounds stupid to say oh she's so normal because that's what we all say but she's actually exceptional She's exceptionally talented. That's true, yeah. And if her, yeah. and it, you know, it just goes to show what society, how society frames things. Because if her brain was inside somebody who looked and spoke like, for example, Helena Bonham Carter, who Kathy Burke has famously sort of <laughs> criticised, we would, yeah. we wouldn't look, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say, oh, she's so normal. You know, it's because That's she's uh, got a, you know, a London accent, and um, you know, she's not, she doesn't look like a. A, a professor or a model um, that mm. we think that she's unextraordinary. She's extraordinary. She's an extremely so clever and articulate woman um, and very good actor and a very good director and um, a very good, yeah, just a really brilliant, clever, creative who I would yeah. love to learn from and be like. And thankfully as well, she just seems like such a great, person as well yeah. like with a really good heart i mean She's uh, nice. in, in the sort of antithesis of or- orwell's room 101 stephen fry when he was on room 101 said that there should be a, a lovely room to put all the best things in the world yes. in and he oh. would put kathy burke in there <laughs> yes. and that is just brilliant that's it's about true. as high praise as it gets it's true yeah i mean yeah she uh, yeah she's a she's a good kind fair person and Good, kind, and fair are the things that the works of all the other guests have been shouting about how ungood and yes. unkind and unfair the world is. And if the world was full of Kathy Burks and everyone did improv and everybody learned to bake one good cake. <laughs> oh, what a perfect world you're describing. Then we there. wouldn't need the works of Orwell or Margaret Atwood. Atwood uh, <laughs> oh, at God, all. they'd have to. They'd what? write, they'd write something else. They they'd do. write jolly stories, you know. Charles, yeah. Dickens, Charles Dickens' books would have been a bit fluffy if they'd just been the funny, the funny, quirky, <laughs> you know, sort of silly, True. silly caricature people. That what he did so cleverly was he balanced them with with very brutal reality. If he'd just written nothing but Mr. and Mrs. Badger, we we'd, we wouldn't have gone down in history <laughs> in that way. Yeah. Oh, and Kathy absolutely exemplifies the the best qualities and that the aspirational quality and all the work that the other yeah completely what a great group of guests you put together you got charles dickens bill bryce and george orwell margaret atwood and kathy burke yeah at the wonderful pelican house the wonderful pelican house go check it out st james's park awesome you're not allowed inside. So amazing. You're not allowed inside unless you're coming to my special dinner party. Yes, unless you're. <laughs> Where unless we you're are allowed a dinner inside. Party. I'm desperate to go inside. That's the only reason. Yeah, I want to go inside the Pelican House. Oh, I bet you'd be allowed if you had Charles Dickens with Charles you. Charles Dickens can get in anywhere. Yeah. The ultimate VIP. Now, Margaret Atwood, with her confidence, she oh, could just yeah. saunter in anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, the last thing, Liv, we need to discuss is hmm. you've got these amazing people at the Pelican House. And now you've got to cook for them. Yeah. Um, Are you an enthusiastic cook? I am. I love cooking. Um, And that's why in the the things I mentioned to you ahead of this, I said things that I definitely can cook um, because I didn't want to have a panic in the kitchen and go, oh, God, I don't know how to make. Uh, (laughs) But then do I have to cook? Am I, you know, listen, right. We're in a world where 
three of our guests, well, two of our guests have been raised from the dead. One's been taken out of retirement. Um, look, can I get some some really delicious food from that I had abroad once? Can I have it specially made and brought to the Pelican House for this fantasy dinner party? Do you know what? I, I don't see why not. This oh, is definitely the, the aspect of the dream dinner party that I'm challenged on most frequently. I mean, I've it's... had the occasional person say, no, it's my dream dinner party and I'm getting a caterer in. And well, I this think, is the thing. Fair I, enough. I thought, the thing is, I, was, I took, it's really funny because when I thought of the other, other questions, I was really fantastical. I was like, Charles Dickens from, from heaven will descend. And then with the food, I was like, right. And now I'm not very good at doing risottos because they're often a bit starchy. Um, Kathy Burke's a vegetarian and I wouldn't want to make, a, you know, and I got really practical about it as if this, you know, but then I remembered, um, I was lucky enough to go and work in China once and I did um, oh, wow. the most uh, cool guy, big tour when I was uh, doing for the globe, doing workshops and storytellings um, in lots and lots and lots of different provinces. Um, and uh, there was some really cool food that I got to try. And um, there was some amazing dumplings which were filled with hot soup. Right. Oh, my word. And basically the, the game that you play is uh, that you have to try and lift the dumplings with your chopsticks without it cracking and all the soup falling out. <laughs> and I, I think if you're going to have a dinner party and you're going to have guests that don't know each other, it's fun to have some food that's a bit fun, that maybe is a bit of a talking point, that maybe turns it into a bit of a game, you know? So yeah. I want to serve these um, these uh, dumplings that I had in Beijing, which are filled with different types of hot soup. There can be vegetarian ones for Kathy, who I know is a vegetarian. Um and uh, you have to all like carefully, carefully lift them with your chopsticks and try and get them in your mouth before the soup falls out. If if Bill Bryson gets covered in soup, we'll all laugh and um, it'll be fine. Maybe a pelican can just like hop in through the window and, 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 and you know, and, and nibble the, the bits of wonton off of Bill Bryson's big cardigan that he clearly is going to be what wearing. What an image. Um, and also there's another fun thing I had in Beijing, which I just think, I don't know why we don't have it everywhere all over the world. And that's a hot pot where you get to sit around a special table and there's a spicy broth. And then you choose lots of different ingredients and you put them in the in the broth and they cook in the broth. And when they float up to the top, they're ready. And you just pick them out oh. with your chopsticks. And because I, I was really worried because I didn't know what different people eat. I wouldn't be surprised if Margaret Atwood's a vegetarian as well. She's a pescatarian. Oh, well, gosh. Mm. Well, I love fish. So she can have fish. Uh, Kathy can have <laughs> vegetables. And uh, you can get all kinds of interesting meats. I had uh, duck's intestines when I had a hot pot in Beijing. Oh, my word. It looks like, it looks like tagliatelle. And that's what you have to think about when you're trying to eat it. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. you can't get it down you. But I thought if we had dumplings, it'd be fun to try and not to try and use our chopsticks and not spill the soup. And if we had the hot pot, uh, we could all choose whatever we wanted to have, and everybody picks what they like out of the um, thing with their with oh, their chopsticks. That so I thought that'd be fun for a dinner party. That would be super fun. What would you be putting in? Oh, um, I would probably go for. Uh, I had so many different kinds of wonderful vegetable when I was there that I th mm. that I didn't really have here. Things like lotus stems and lotus flowers. They were my favorite oh my. thing that gets, that was, you know, as common as cabbage to us, but everybody was always having them and uh, lots of different kinds of mushrooms. Ooh, yeah. Really, really nice. Good. And a very spicy broth. It was really tasty. Oh, that sounds absolutely terrific. A really fun element that I think you've got the right group of guests there. Yeah. I think they would get into the spirit of that. Too. I hope so. 
Uh, what a brilliant dinner party you put together, Lynn. Thank you so, <laughs> Thank so you. much for thinking of that. And it, just so fascinating hearing your reasons for inviting these people and how they've influenced your brilliant work. And speaking of your brilliant work. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, you got some really cool things coming up. I, I do. Yeah, I've been... Uh... I've been just recently working on uh, a new audio play, which is going to be uh, on a small truth theatre. Uh, have created a digital platform for some amazing audio plays that you can listen to. And uh, mine is a Christmassy special one. Um, and it's a new retelling of The Emperor's New Clothes. That is wonderful. Uh, which I call The Emperor's New Clothes, an unfairy tale. And it's very uh, current and topical to our uh, world now. As a matter of fact, it had about five edits because <laughs> in the last two weeks of news, I had to keep changing things about it. Uh, there's some of my original music <laughs> in there as well. Um, so there's songs as well. And I'm in that as well as having written it with the brilliant Valentine Hansen, who's the other actor in that. Um, I've also made a short film for a wonderful group of people. Uh, if you find them on Instagram or Twitter, they're called Lockdown Lives Shorts, a very talented group of creatives who were all in the middle of projects when lockdown happened, um, all suddenly didn't have any work to do and uh, collaborated. And I was very kindly invited by them to write a short film which I've written, which is called Intelligence. And we are uh, mm. looking to release that very soon. And those are my two big current projects that are up and coming. They are so exciting. We will add links to those things into the episode description. Thank you. So people can check them out. We'll also add links to your Twitter account, where I'm sure you'll keep us up to date with all the exciting stuff that you're going to be doing in 2021. Too. Yes, definitely. Uh, Liv, thank you so, so much for joining us on the dinner party. And I really hope when things are back up and running that we get to see another one of your wonderful shows on stage in Oxford very soon. Thank you. I hope so, too. Thank you very much for having thank me. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Liv. <laughs> Speak to you soon. Speak to you soon. Thank you very Bye. much. Bye. How fun was that? What a tremendous group of guests Olivia put together there. Imagine how much of a better writer and all-round creative you would be after surrounding yourself with those people for an evening. Not that Liv needs much help in that front. She is absolutely terrific. Check out the episode description to find links to Olivia's Twitter account and to her wonderful new adaptation of The Emperor's New Clothes. I really can't wait to tune in for that. Olivia is so funny, so creative and so thoughtful. I know it's going to be a tremendous show. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can listen back to all of our previous episodes. And as ever, a like, a retweet, a share, review, anything you can do to spread the word about the podcast would be enormously appreciated. I think these conversations with amazing people like Olivia should be heard far and wide. And that can only happen if people like you help us out. The Dinner Party is a Jericho comedy production for all things Jericho comedy, including our wonderful upcoming shows at the beautiful North Wall in Oxford. Visit www.jerichocomedy.com. And for more of my radio, podcast, comedy and writing work, visit www.conormcreynolds.com. I'll be back next week for the final episode in the first series of The Dinner Party. I really can't wait for that. But until then, thank you so much for listening and bye-bye. <laughs>